Sleigh bells ring, are you listening? In the lane, snow is glistening. A beautiful sight, we're happy tonight. Walking in a winter wonderland, gone away. Hello there, welcome back to the holiday special of the Just End the Suffering podcast. We're talking to New York sports the perspective of a long-suffering fan. Your host, Mike Phillips, had a very fun year on the podcast this year. We're going to... Go through our, all our annual uh, holiday special traditions here. This is where, you know, I sort of, you know, set the show up. Ask you to go, go off the ride. It's a lot of fun. Time codes, you want to get spoiled on what's coming, but trust me, you have some fun here. If you like what you hear the Justin Suffering Podcast, feel, feel free to subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon, all the usual suspects. Simply search for Just End the Suffering, your favorite podcast platforms. My episode's there. Feel free to your feedback and starring as well. That way the podcast even better going forward. Check the YouTube page, Mike Phillips on YouTube. Video versions of all the conversations in the podcast are up on the YouTube channel. Again, Mike Phillips on YouTube. Without any further ado, there's a lot in store here. Let's get it all started here. We're going to do our first feature guest here. We're going to talk more with Jeff Perlman. We talked to him in October about his, his Bo Jackson book here. I had the full conversation with Jeff coming up right after this call from uh, Bo Jackson's famous Monday Night Football touchdown run against the Seattle Seahawks, that is coming up here right after this. At the nine. And Bo Jackson to the 20 and out in front. And only one man to feed and easily can't run him down. He had the angle, but there goes Bo. And nobody catches Bo. Touchdown. (laughs) He may not stop the Tacoma. (laughs) He's gone. Portland. (laughs) He just went by Spokane. And there go the Raiders into five. (laughs) What a scene. (laughs) Come on back, guys. Oh, he was flying. Third and sixth. You'll see Dean Miraldi, the center, pull out of there. Steve Wright, the right tackle. But, I mean, it's over right there. Kenny easily has the angle. And it's like little kids chasing a grown man. It's the longest run in Raider history. All right, we are back here on the Just End the Suffering podcast. Got a special treat for you guys today. I have had a chance to read a new book that's come out, coming out here, The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson. I'm speaking to the author of the book today. Joining me is Jeff Perlman. He's written a lot of sports, but he's written for Sports Illustrated. Jeff, welcome. How are you? Uh, I'm very well, and it's good to speak to someone, uh, a guy from the home, the the old neck of the woods. I'm a, I'm a mail pack guy. I worked, I sold cookies at the Jefferson Valley Mall. I took surveys at the Jefferson Valley Mall. Um, I had my careers at the JV Mall. Yeah, I remember the JV Mall at a movie theater. That's so long ago. Does it not have one anymore? Long gone. They it's got, a dead mall now, right? They actually have revived it pretty like pretty well. I mean, there's now an escape room in there. They have a new restaurant in there. Like they've done a job fixing it up. Oh, that's good to hear. Because that was my, if you were growing up in Mayopac in the 1980s, you, as you know, as we've discussed, not much to do in Mayopac in the 1980s. <laughs> the JV Mall, you'd go, you'd wander around, you'd bring 10 bucks. They had a Burger King, a pizza joint, and you just roam the mall. So uh, anyway, there you go. Yeah, they have a Cinnabon now. And it tells you they're doing well. Did not have a Cinnabon back in the day. <laughs> did not. But they did have a Burger King and a Friendly's ice cream place, so. Yeah, a lot. Like I think a, a lot of fun with the JV Mall memories. Talk about this book here, and the book is entitled, as I mentioned earlier, here, "The Last Folk Hero: The Life and Time and Myth of Bo Jackson." Here, and I want to start out here with a question because obviously you've written a lot of books. You've written about the '86 Mets, several Laker dynasties, Brett Favre. What made you say I want to do a book on Bo Jackson? 
Well, during those days in Mayo Pack when I was growing up, like he was on my wall. Bo Jackson was on my wall. Ricky Henderson was on my wall. Don Mattingly was on my wall. Dwight Gooden was on my wall. And I'm very nostalgic. I'm very, very nostalgic. And when I was thinking about the next book, my last book was about the Shaq Kobe era Lakers. I really love writing about and diving into athletes who I grew up watching and appreciating. And um, even when I went to University of Delaware, I had two Bo Jackson posters hanging up. Like he was among my handful of favorite athletes. And I just think you read the book, like there's a real mystique to what could he have been? How many of these things people talk about actually happened and where has he gone? And I just think those are good recipes for a book when you talk about an iconic figure like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you go through the book and you, you just look at all these different feats like Bo Jackson when he's a kid, like they, we had like Miley teammates telling how like he ran up walls, how to throw balls with the running track, to, like over the center field fence and like a lot of stuff like, is it real? Is it not sort of as the myth of Bo? And I'm kind of comfortable with both. You know, like I verify hard. I interviewed 720 people. I reported this thing super duper hard. But when you're talking about like, there's a, I haven't talked about this yet uh, while promoting the book, but there was a game when he was playing in Memphis with the chicks in the minor leagues in 86. And he's running toward a foul line, I think it's Charlotte at the ballpark in Charlotte. And they have a chain separating the foul from fair territory, like a literal physical chain. And it's five feet high. And I had multiple teammates tell me Bo ran, caught the ball on a fly, like planted his feet, leapt over the five foot thing, turned around, flat foot, jumped over it again. Now, there's no video of that. Nobody was videotaping the Charlotte Memphis game back in 86. But I have witnesses and sometimes you go with them. And and even if stories like there's a lot of tall tales with Bo Jackson. There's just are there a lot of that ball went 500 feet. No, it went 600 feet. You sort of just there's a little wink, wink, nudge, nudge for uh, some of these things. Absolutely. Here you mentioned you interviewed 720 people. One of them was not Bo Jackson himself. I know you talked to Bo beforehand, and he basically gave you his blessing to do the book, but he did not interview to be interviewed for it. So here, so I I understand you had a very creative way to get Bo Jackson's voice into the book. I wouldn't say he gave me his blessing. I just want to say, to be clear, I don't want to misrepresent. He said, I'm fine with you doing it, okay. which isn't the same as saying, good luck with it. I hope it's <laughs> great. He didn't stand in my way. Um, I got really lucky. So he went to Auburn University in Alabama, and someone told me that when he was, uh, he wrote an autobiography in 1990, Bo, Bo Knows Bo, with a legendary journalist named Dick Shap. And Dick Shap has since passed. A lot of people might know the name because his son Jeremy is on ESPN. And when Dick Shap died, before he died, excuse me, he donated all his notes to the Auburn Library. And it wasn't just notes, it was the audio recordings of all his interviews he did with Bo. And I was able to pay Auburn's library, whatever, a nominal fee, and they sent me everything. And a lot of the interviews were never used before. A lot of the material was never used before. It didn't appear in his autobiography. And it was just mounds and mounds and mounds of, of information, of quotes, of fresh material. So I've told people it almost felt like having a conversation with 28-year-old Bo Jackson. It was invaluable. Yeah, like how much material was there? Like how many like tapes did uh, Dick Shap donate to that oh. library? So they sent it to me on a on a file. So it wasn't actually the audio tapes anymore. It was yeah. all that converted. So I don't know how many tapes, but it was, uh, well, I'd say maybe 20 yeah. thick interview. You know, because yeah. what he did, Dick Shap at the time they would do is maybe Dick would meet him in Kansas City before a game. They'd sit down and talk. He'd go to his house at different session. They'd sit down and talk. They'd go out to eat at a diner. They'd sit down and talk. So it was all these different sporadic interviews 
with Bo Jackson. And it was him talking about stuff because he was very guarded with the media. It was stuff he usually wouldn't talk about. And some of the stuff, a lot of the stuff never made the book for one reason or another, but it, it made this book. Yeah, it did make the book here. And I know, obviously, you were doing a lot of the prep for this book, like in the height of COVID. I know you talk about how it sort of changed your trajectory here. Like, what were some of the challenges you had at trying to write this book? Like when you're dealing with, oh, like travel, like restrictions, stuff like that. What was some of the big challenges you had to overcome writing this book? Well, you, I mean, travel is number one by far. Yeah. Is I like going to scenes and I like knocking on doors and I like talking to people in person. Not just because it's good reporting, because it's actually fun. And one of the reasons we do this is to for the enjoyment and the dig. So that sucked. <laughs> and I finally, sort of toward the end of, you know, when, when everyone was getting COVID and things were getting a little better, I was able to go to Alabama, uh, spent a lot of time in the basement of the main branch of the Birmingham Library, got a lot of great stuff, a lot of microfilm on Bo Jackson high school articles and stuff like that. And then I was able to go to his old neighborhood in Bessemer, and literally knock door to door. And you know, one thing that's interesting, since we were talking geography, where he grew up isn't that different than Mayopac. Yeah. It was very rural. It was minority. It was almost exclusively African-American, whereas Mayopac was 99% white. So it was a, but like very rural, very wooded. Um, his road wasn't all that different from my road. Um, it wasn't paved. Mine was kind of bad, badly paved. And I just walked door to door. Knock, knock, knock. Hey, my name's Jeff Perlman. Do you remember? Knock, knock, knock. Hey. And the first guy I met was a guy named Symphony Adams. He was a 30-year-old guy. He lived on the end of his street, and he was burning his trash in his yard when I <laughs> when I showed up. And he just gave me a real good breakdown of Bessemer. So I wanted to travel more. That was the biggest part. But the, the good news, if there's good news of a global pandemic that killed so many people, was that everyone was home. Like when you called people, they were home. And I think people were a little more itching for uh, human contact. So it was not as hard as usual to get people just to sit down and take an hour and talk. Yeah, it makes some sense here. You say you interview a lot of people here. Who was your favorite interview? Who was somebody like who gave you like some of those interviews? Was somebody in Bessemer or some, one of Bo's teammates? Like what? Like who was the most fun to talk to? I mean, there were many. I will say like he had a teammate at Auburn named Lionel James. And uh, you're a little young for this, but he was a really, really good running back with the San Diego Chargers later. His nickname was Little Train. Lionel Little Train James. And um he actually died in between me handing in the book and now. It's really sad. He was only 60. Really nice guy. And he was awesome. He lived with Bo in college. They were friends. He had really good insights into him. He told me a story. I thought one thing that's really interesting, like, again, you grew up in Yorktown. I grew up in Mayopac. I grew up in Mayopac during an era. My best friend, who was African-American, was one of two black kids in my grade. And, you know, there was a lot of racism back then, a lot of the N-word, and people, you'd hear this stuff. And when Bo Jackson went to Auburn, deep in the South in Alabama, the score was 99% white. Like it was a, I think it was 0.8 African-American maybe. And I had these long talks with Lionel James about what it was to be a black athlete at Auburn in the 80s. And he told me, uh, Bo Jackson's sophomore year, they were renovating the athletic dorm. So they put all the different uh, players in trailers just for the year so they could live somewhere. They put them in trailers. And the coach of the Auburn football team pulled Lionel James and Bo Jackson aside and said, listen, um, I know you guys are dating white girls. I don't have a problem with it, but it's not going to go over well at the university. Um, I'm going to give you a trailer that's pretty far off of campus. So you guys do what you want, live your lives. Just It's going to be away from campus. Like they literally like you were a black guy at Auburn. You were not allowed to date white women. Like it was not, it was frowned upon. And if you were a football player and you dated a white girl, you could do it, but it better be kept secret. And a lot of those things kind of reminded me of 
I remember growing up in Mayo Pack in the eighties and like you, you would never, I remember my friend could not get a prom date. He was a handsome, smart kid who went to the Naval Academy, but he happened to be the black kid in the grade and he couldn't get a prom date. And some of that stuff really evoked feelings for me relearning about it, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make some sense here. And obviously one of my favorite parts in the book was going through all of like the Bo Jackson myths and like all of his like feats of athleticism. Like what was your favorite one you uncovered you hadn't known about before you did the book? Hi there too. Can I go too? Sure. He played a high school game against Fairfield High in Alabama. And all right, everyone kept telling me, man, he hit a ball and it went so high that by the time it came down, he was at third base. I heard that story. I was like, uh, can I put, can I curse on your, uh, on your yeah, podcast? sure. I was like, that's bullshit. Right? That's bullshit. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. All right. I tracked down Eddie Scott, the left fielder for Fairfield High. He's like, yep. He's like, I was playing outfield. The ball was so high. I could not see the ball. It came down. It bounced on the grass. I look up. Bo is rounding third. Ridiculous. Utterly ridiculous. The other one is, it's a first night game in the University of Georgia's baseball history. This is Bo's junior year. And um, they've been trying to get lights for years. Steve Weber, the coach, finally gets the lights. And um, Bo Jackson is booed mercilessly in the outfield for Auburn. And his first at bat, he grounds out. And the fans just boo him. They let him have it. First night, first night game. Have you seen the movie The Natural? I have. So you know the famous scene, it hits the lights and it explodes. Yes. All right. This is 29 days before The Natural comes <laughs> out. Bo Jackson, second at bat. He hits a home run that hits the lights. Hits the lights. He runs back out to, out to the outfield. I think he was playing right field. And the fans stand up and start bowing at him. These are Georgia fans <laughs> bowing. His next two at-bats, he hits two more home runs. And his last at-bat, he doubles, and everyone boos. Yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. And there's no video of that game, but I interviewed so many people, Georgia players, Auburn players, spectators, media. I feel like I got a real good feel for it. Yeah, I remember that game. I stuck out me when I was reading the book here. Also, I want to go through some of the more specific stuff of Bo's life here. Start with, like, Bo as a kid, because obviously I think one of the big things I noticed when I was going through that section of the book was, like, how much the impact of him, like, not having his father be around because his father, A.D. Adams, basically, like, is an absentee father. Like, he it gives, like, uh, his mom, Florence, gives birth to Bo, and then A.D. Adams basically moves across town, starts a whole, whole other family with another woman here, and, like, sort of see, like, the de- challenges Bo has. He's trying to, like, his mom's working three jobs to keep things stabilized. He's, like, getting into fights just to just because people are getting, like, uh, making fun of his stutter, like, all that crazy stuff with Bo. Talk about, like, what you found most interesting about his childhood. First of all, Mike, I just want to say, and I really mean this, I do so many of these interviews where people don't read the book or don't know what they're talking about or ask open-ended questions. I just want to say sincerely, I really appreciate that you read the book. It yeah. actually means a lot to me. I yeah. just want you to know that. Yeah. Um, and it says something about you, um, just so you took the time. Yeah. Um, it meant everything. It, it, it drove his life. It predetermined so much about him. Imagine you're Bo Jackson and you're being raised by a single mom. You're one of 11 kids. You're living in a house with three rooms. People are sleeping on floors. You, there's a uh, there's a uh, a wood burning furnace that you roll into sometimes at night, and you have burn marks on your arm. You don't have running water. You have to go to an outhouse on your property to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night with uh, fly paper on top, uh, tar paper on top to keep you know rain out. And your dad has no interest in you. Not only has no interest in you, like it's one thing to have be abandoned by your father, which is a muff of a mind fuck. He lives across town with his own family and shows no interest in you and pops up every now and then. And that's it. Like that drove him. 
that made him that drove him as a father it drove him as an athlete it drove him as a human being also his mother was hardcore disciplinarian and you know there's one part where she like tied him to the bed and beat the shit out of him there are other parts where she would he was basically in the south i learned this from doing a book about walter payton years ago during this time period 50s 60s 70s african-american families rural south the basic rule of thumb was for a parent to a kid who screwed up or made a mistake or disrespected them is pick what you want me to hit you with a switch which is a stick uh the shower curtain rod um or uh, uh an extension cord pick and that's what he grew up with and that's intense and um the other thing is his mom did not want him to play football she was very adamant so he didn't play football in junior high he was a very late bloomer to football and when he showed up those first few years he played jv he didn't just jump to varsity play jv when people played with him are like yeah he was good but he wasn't he wasn't all world and then all of a sudden he's on varsity and it just went Push. yeah that's for sure and speaking of like bo's like talent as just pure athlete because like i related to this sense of like when i was like in high school like i was like a kid was like this was, like really smart didn't really have to like apply like studying as much that would still get the good grades huh. so it feels like how bo was with the sports i mean throughout his career he's like i hate practice like he didn't really take time to learn the playbook as much learn the techniques or weight lift or anything like that but like he was just so good that he could basically walk on the field, like be handed the ball and run for 60 yards at a touchdown or like a crush a fastball for our homie here. So like, what, what do you think about like Bo's like just natural ability? Because like, it's crazy to think like how's better he could have been if he actually did have like the motivation to like properly train or like learn our practices and formation, stuff like that. He was so preposterously naturally gifted. And he also was very savvy. Like he's not a, he's a smart guy and he's a savvy guy. I mean, look at it. He basically, there was an entire marketing campaign based around him and he barely said anything in the marketing campaign. Like he was savvy and he was smart and he had good people around him. He's still savvy and smart. Um, he was bursting with athleticism. There's no other way to say it. He was bursting with, you can say God's gifts. If you're religious, you can say just like this physical hand-me-down tools. But I mean, he never lifted weights. He hated football practice. He liked baseball practice. He hated track practice. He truly was an athlete who could show up and just be freaking special. And you, that's a generational thing that really is. I think in the modern days, maybe Mike Trout has that, you know, um, maybe Lamar Jackson to a certain degree, but he doesn't have that strength. There are certain guys who just can show up and they're so far above gifted. Um, and the interesting thing is, and it really is true. Like I wrote a book about Walter Payton. And Walter Payton and Kobe Bryant's another guy. When you have a guy who is the most naturally gifted or one of the most naturally gifted athletes in the world and he works his ass off, you get Kobe Bryant, you get Walter Payton. And it's in a way awe-inspiring to think about what Bo Jackson possibly could have been. But it's also possible this is as good as he could have been and he was just so freakishly athletic that he hit the top ceiling anyway. Yeah, that's for sure here. And you mentioned Bo like at Auburn here because like it's interesting like how like he and he's a kid like I have no reason leaving the states, getting all these recruiting letters. He's like I'm only staying in Alabama, and like Freeland Abbott guides him there, and you see all the stuff he does whether it's a football team, how they basically resign the offense for him a little bit, how he just shows up after football team and runs track and is like winning meets in the SEC championships and the baseball team. It's just it's just nothing about all the stuff he was able to do at Auburn. It's ridiculous. It's I mean. We should have known from high school, right? High school, he's he stole 90 out of 91 bases yeah, yeah. in his lifetime. Like, that's ridiculous, right? That's like, that's ridiculous. He 
he set a national single season high school record with 20 home runs. Yeah. You know, like he was as good a defensive player on the line as he was a running back. He was their kicker. Like he was preposterous. He just was preposterous. And he shows up at Auburn. And at the time there was a running back uh, who wound up going to Oklahoma named Marcus Dupree, who everyone considered the greatest athlete of all time, blah, blah, blah. So Bo Jackson coming to Auburn was under the radar and he shows up and he runs a four one three forty at 220 pounds. And it's like, how did y'all miss this guy? He's preposterous. He's ridiculous. He's different level. And um, everything he did at Auburn was just the things he did jumping out of a pool in waist deep water, bending his knees, landing on the lip of the pool. You know, like, how do you do that? Home runs he hit off of people, walls he climbed, like just random. Someone said to me today, I don't, he really caught six flies in one hand. Like there was this moment where there are these flies around uh, on a windowsill. And he says to a baseball teammate, watch this. I'm going to catch all six of them. And he takes his hand and he goes, Shush. and he goes, he opens up his fingers one by one. And the flies just fly out of the hand. He just was different level. He absolutely was here. I also feel like felt like when I was reading through some of his time at football at Auburn, like especially he's dealing with all these injuries in college, and like he was dealing with some nasty injuries too. And he kept getting these labels out. Bo is soft. Everyone him to like say, oh, like uh, Herschel Walker was better than him. Let's bring on this random uh, kid from a D two school to be in the Heisman campaign because he's D three. Joe Dudek, D three, Plymouth State. Yeah, yeah, Joe Dudek, because he's not Bo. Like, Bo was going through a lot. And I think between that and the stutter, this sort of made it hard for him to sort of communicate, like, what he's actually dealing with. Yeah, and also, in his defense, like, okay, so you're Herschel Walker. And Herschel Walker was amazing. He really was amazing. It actually makes me sad what's going on now, because people forget how preposterous of an athlete he was and how much he meant to Georgia, which he really did. But, like, if you said to Herschel Walker at the time, you have a Bruce Sternum or you have a concussion and you're seeing five things when you should be seeing one, he would have played through it, right? And that would have been really stupid. Like that was really, we've learned from athletes how dumb it was that they were, the machismo of football uh, led a lot of people to multiple concussions, to debilitating injuries. Bo wasn't that guy. Bo would take himself out of game if he was hurt. And at the time in the 80s, we'd be like, oh, he's soft. He doesn't want it. And like, no, actually he's savvy. He's smart. And he realizes he has a future and like, playing with internal bleeding, which he had in one game, is not wise. So these crusty old coaches who didn't really give a shit about their African-American athletes as long as they played would be slamming them. And Bo Jackson was savvy about it. And he did play hard and he did play hurt. And he caught a lot of grief. And that whole, I mean, I remember it vividly. The Sports Illustrated cover, Bo Jackson's senior year. It said the thinking man's, the thinking fans vote for the Heisman Trophy and had three pictures, Bo Chuck Long, the Iowa quarterback, and Joe Dudek from Division Three Plymouth State. And SI put a check next to Joe Dudek's face. And um, Dudek was a great Division Three runner, a lovely guy. But if Bo Jackson had played Division Three football, he would have run for 7,000 yards, <laughs> probably more. It's a joke. And it was all, it really was, look, let's praise the white scrappy guy because the black gifted athlete wouldn't know work if it hit him in the face. And looking back, it's just really disgusting. Yeah, it really was. I do want to touch about like now how Bo is going pro because like we do see like I remember the closest debate we had in recent months with the Kyler Murray football or baseball thing is drafted by Oakland and chose to play football here. Sort of the opposite with Bo because Bo like the Tampa Bay Buccaneers back then were terrible, the number one pick, and then we had this whole fiasco with Freeland Abbott basically agreeing to fly him on the Bucks plane to go for a physical, gets him completely uh -huh. ineligible at Auburn for his senior year, and like 
like for baseball. And I sort of really just like tick bow off the board and said, you know, like screw this. I'm going to go play baseball right now. I don't want to play football. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. And I, it's still up in the air whose fault that was. Like, I actually think gun to head that Freeland Abbott probably called the NCAA or called the SEC and said, is this okay? Because at the time, it was the same time as the NCAA basketball tournament. And supposedly the SEC offices were fairly empty. They sent all their officials to wherever the tournament was. And I could see some guy being like, yeah, that sounds good. Okay. And then them doing it. Because Bo always, Bo blamed two people. He blamed his agent, who he shouldn't have had anyway, because he weren't allowed to have an agent, but whatever. He blamed him. And he thought the Tampa Bay Buccaneers were trying to ruin his eligibility. So he couldn't play any more baseball. But that doesn't make any sense. Like, that makes no sense. That would be the dumbest move in the history of organized sports that a team would say, he, 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 if we ruin his baseball eligibility, he'll have to sign with us. Like, that's preposterous. So I think someone screwed up badly. And, you know, I think if none of that happens, Bo Jackson winds up a Tampa Bay Buccaneer. I think they offer him a lot more money in baseball. They have the number one pick. They have Steve Young at quarterback. Um, He gets to stay in the South. I think he winds up with maybe even never playing baseball. It does think it's interesting too because like he talk he talk about in the book when he's going to have meetings with these with the players on the Bucks and all of them are just him hey like go away don't come here I mean you want no part of this so I thought that was also very funny. Oh, Steve Young, who I interviewed for a book I wrote about the USFL, is one of my favorite people on earth. He's just great, and he told this story I'd never heard where he's like the owner of the Bucks was this old racist jackass named Hugh Culverhouse, and he he wanted to woo Bo to Tampa, so he said to Steve Young, their young star, "Let's go to dinner or lunch, and we'll take Bo." and talk to him. So they're at lunch. And this is after the Buccaneers had flown him in. They gave him, he, he came out to meet different people. And they're at this restaurant, fancy restaurant and Culver House is like, I'm going to excuse myself and leave you too. And uh, Bo leans into Steve Young and says, just so you know, there's no fucking way I'm signing with this team. <laughs> and Steve Young's like, okay, my job is done here. I'm good. <laughs> and uh, they all knew he shouldn't. Like Steve Young, you know, wanted Bo Jackson as a teammate, but like he knew there's no, like, you don't want to be a Tampa Bay Buccaneer in the 1980s. It's not like now. Yeah, that's for sure here. And obviously, Bo ends up getting picked in the fourth round by the Royals, play baseball. He has this whole unique contract negotiation with them and where he's, like, guaranteed himself a promotion to the major leagues in September here. I did enjoy yeah. sort of the, the chapter on Memphis where basically Memphis is using him as a marketing tool and just has him, you know, sign endless baseballs and he's setting yeah. poor clubhouse attendance after Bo. It's like, oh, you need this done, we need this done, this done. And Bo's trying to, like, play professional baseball. He's just getting bothered every 30 seconds or something new. Wait, my favorite thing is he got a, he, he taught one of the clubhouse kids how to sign his name. Yeah. And like they're like, right now there are thousands of people in Memphis with like Bo Jackson autographed balls in plastic casing. And it was actually signed by the clubhouse kid. Yeah. He, um, he hated his time in Memphis. He didn't dislike his teammates. He didn't dislike the city of Memphis. It's nice. Southern. he's a Southern guy. It's a Southern city. He was cool with it. But the, uh, the GM and the owner just milked him. George Lapidus just milked him and milked him and milked him and had him sign. And it really, I mean, shit hit the fan when the owner of the team um, set up an interview for his son's friend on the high school newspaper. And the son's friend shows up. Bo already said no. He said, I don't have time for this. But Lapidus just ignores him. And his son's friend shows up from like, but whatever, his high school gazette. And Bo just is like, I hate to do this to you, kid, but I fucking told the owner I'm not doing this shit. And um, it just set him off. And understandably, you know, they just abused him. He was there to play baseball and get to the majors as quick as possible. 
Yeah, one thing I also noticed that the baseball I sort of enjoyed was like the swagger Bo Jackson had, and how he's showing up to the Royals clubhouse, is acting like he's the hot guy on campus, and like the thing oh, I was laughing so hard, like when he shows up the first day, he's dropping autographed Heisman photos on everybody's chairs, like, I, and the guys are like, "You've proven nothing to us here. Like, why are you drop leaving these things for us?" It was some severely tone deaf nonsense. Like Willie Wilson and George Brett, guys who've been in the majors for a decade don't want your autograph photo. Like <laughs> it's not a cool move. And like, it is funny. He brought them all. You started putting them on the chairs of the players and how McCray, a veteran Royal was following him around, taking them and throwing them in the air like this. And um, all the players started throwing them on the ground. He was super cocky and self-assured. And when he, uh, I mean, you read the book, his first game as a major leaguer, he's September 2nd. He's facing Steve Carton, one of the, you know, great pitchers of all time, all time, all time. It's future Hall of Famer comes in with 321 wins. If you watch the at bat, it's an ode to like youth, youthful self assurance versus an aged guy trying to hang on. I mean, Bo is like all but flexing at the plate. He takes his long stroll around the plate at one point. He hits a foul ball that's like this close to being a home run that flies over the pole. And he gets his first major league hit. First of all, it's a it's a ground ball to second base that he beats out. He runs from home to first in 3.6 seconds, which is the second fastest recorded time in Major League history for a righty. The first was Mickey Mantle. And um, he's later admits he had no idea who Steve Carver was. <laughs> I've never heard of the man. It's insane. It absolutely is insane here. And then it's interesting because, like, I, I, he plays a couple of years at the Royals, like, starts getting himself in there. He's still getting a curveball to save his life, but he is just so athletic a gift. He's making a big difference here. And then... He lets it be known, I think, to he back channels to the Raiders. Like, hey, I'm willing to play football. I want to play for the Raiders here. And that did not go over well with his uh, teammates at the Royals. No, especially when it came to a reality. Um, they were pissed. And it was understandable. Um, number one, because, like, who the hell are you? Like, we've already given you special treatment. You were, like, you were called up before you should have been called up. Like, he wasn't major league ready when he came up. You were called up before you called up. You make a lot more money than a lot of us who have been here a long time. They roll out the red carpet for you. They roll out the red carpet for your family. And now they're just going to let you play this violent sport too. And we can't even, we have uh, clauses in our contract that say we can't, you know, windsurf or ride a motorcycle and you're, they're going to let you play in the NFL. That's insane. So a lot of the guys were really furious and it got worse because his first major league, his first NFL season was 87 and he really slumped in baseball toward the end of the 87 season. And, um, they were just like, this is bullshit. Like, this is not right. And he's, I don't, I don't think it's true, but they're like, he's distracted. He's focused on football. There was not, the tensions were raw. Yeah, they absolutely were here. And as you seeing Bo play football, especially with the Raiders, where Al Davis brings him in, basically he's like, oh, this is the shiny new toy. He's all the speed that I want. He's basically trying to force the coaches to use him instead of Marcus Allen. So like, that stuff was interesting as well because obviously Bo's not practicing very well, but like when he's getting on field, he's doing ridiculous things like the 90 yard touchdown run in Seattle and bowling over Brian Bosworth in the end zone. Oh, it's amazing. 91 yards. 91 yep. yards. Yeah. Gotta be. I, he um he was ridiculous. He just was a different level. You know, he would he just played baseball. He comes in, he barely knows a playbook. He's sleeping through meetings. And like, I mean, he showed up. One of the stories I love is he shows up. They asked him to run a 40 on grass in pads and he runs a 417. Like that's faster than Tyreek Hill's best 40. And he was probably 230 pounds at this point in pads. Like he was a joke. And that Monday night football game is one of the definitive moments of my childhood. One of the definitive moments of Monday night football. 
it announced to the world that this guy was different. Um, it announced to the world that like there's an athlete at a new level who has entered the stratosphere. 20 million people watched that game. It was just enormous, enormous. And also like not for nothing, being serious about this, the Raider uniforms were so cool and still are. It was just his marriage. Like Bo Jackson, who looked like a like a Greek statue, he looked like the David in silver and black. It just like it just was something unique. It really was. Also unique was the whole Nike campaign for Bo Jackson, the Bo Nose deal, and they had the brilliant time of having a run during the '89 All Star game right after he hits the home run, and like he it comes up the fourth inning, I think again after he hits the double, and like it was a great commercial where Bo playing every sport, and then they have Bo Diddley at the end talking about how Bo doesn't know Diddley the how to play the guitar. Like that campaign is still probably one of the best campaigns that I've ever seen, like for a professional oh. athlete. Tell me something, because you're younger than me. Did you know Bo Knows? Like, if someone had said Bo Knows, would you have known it before this book? I only knew it because I watched the Bo Jackson documentary a few years ago, and they talked about it there. 30 for 30, yeah. yeah. So, um, oh, it was enormous, and it's funny. I mean, you read the book. Like, it's a 1989 All-Star game, as you said. The All-Star game at the time was, a, was an enormous national event. Like, it wasn't just a baseball event. At the time, it was a national event. It was must-see TV. The players played hard. They wanted to win. And uh, Tony LaRusso is the manager of the AL. And he, he has a meeting with Bo and Wade Boggs, the Red Sox third baseman. And Wade Boggs ordinarily would have led off this game. And LaRusso says, I think I'm going to lead off Bo. And you're going to bat second. Just for the spectacle of the moment. And Nike has this new ad campaign about to come out. Uh, the Bo Knows campaign. In this case, they got a musician, Bo Diddley, to say at the end of this ad, Bo, you don't know Diddley. And they lined up all these marquee athletes. Michael Jordan's in it. John McEnroe's in it. Joan Benoit Samuelson, Jim Everett, Kirk Gibson, and they all say Bono, Wayne Gretzky, Bono's this, Bono's that. And they're going to air this ad. And all the Nike executives are in New York watching the game at Mickey Mantle's restaurant. And they're really nervous and uptight. How is this going to go? Second pitch of the game, Bo Jackson hits his home run to dead center field. In the booth is Vince Scully and special guest Ronald Reagan, who was recently done as president. The sky is clear blue. The ball bounces on the black batter's eye. And just like there's this scrum and this kid, a law student from BYU, grabs the ball and raises it in the air. And in New York, all the Nike people are hugging and screaming and clapping and cheering because they know they hit marketing gold. Yeah, they absolutely did here. And it looks like he was going to be on track for all sorts of craziest things here. And the thing that's sort of like, sets this all in motion that the downfall here is like the hip injury has a 90 in the 1991 playoffs with the Bengals here where the guy's tackling him and like his leg just plants in the ground his hip really pops out and then like it's crazy to think about how far coming modern medicine compared to 1991 like this situation could have been so much different so much better like with the modern advanced technology like may have actually salvaged some more of Bo Jackson than we did after the fact oh definitely I mean he probably wouldn't have played football anymore, even nowadays with modern technology. But it's not 1 million percent out of the question. It's just unlikely. He probably wouldn't have played football. But there are guys now like Andy Murray in tennis had a hip replacement and kept playing. Um, and I talked to some modern surgeons who said, you know, he would have lost a tiny bit of speed, but not a ton. And when he showed up, to me, the saddest part for Bo Jackson is he shows up at spring training in 1992 with the White Sox. And... uh He's limping along and it's noticeable. And he actually lost a little because of deterioration in his hip. His one leg was actually shorter than his other. And he's kind of hobbling along. And there are moments when like, um, 
like he hit a he hit a ground ball to short against Detroit in a spring training game, and Cecil Fielder was playing first. And he actually waved his arms like, don't make the throw here because Bo was barely running and he just didn't want to embarrass him. And there's nothing sadder. We've all seen videos of like Willie Mason, Willie Mays playing center field for the Mets or like not videos, but, you know, old fat Babe Ruth wearing a, uh, uh, I forgot what it was, but, you know, a Brooklyn Dodgers hat at the end of his career, whatever. It's just sad. And this was really sad. And people thought this was how he was going to go out. And he actually had a hip surgery, replacement surgery. And came back and was the DH for the White Sox and played fairly well. Yeah, it's pretty nice to think about that. I also thought it was interesting that sort of the hipster seemed like a sort of like recentering in terms of Bo's attitude towards his teammates. I mean, there's an incident early in the book when he's like choking out Kevin Seitzer in Toronto, like when he's yeah. like during BP because of the BP violation. But you see, basically, he's making bonds with his teammates now. It's sort of like reset, I think, Bo's mentality. It's like, oh, like I'm not going to be in this game forever. And like he's actually convinced himself more to training and doing stuff like that. I thought that was very interesting just how this changed perspective. I was talking to a friend of mine who played in the, this guy, Sean Green, who used to play for the Dodgers. And I've known Sean for many years. And he said to me recently something that stuck with me. He goes, we, meaning athletes, are all nicer after we retire because we just gain a perspective and we're not in the heat of it. And I think Bo got a lot nicer in that regard after the hip surgery because all of a sudden he did have to lift weights. And all of a sudden he did have to swim in the pool. And all of a sudden he did have to ride the bike. And all of a sudden, he knew what it was to have to make a team. He actually had to make the White Sox. It didn't all just come easily to him. He didn't just glide through it all. The The endorsement deals weren't going to be the same. The attention wasn't going to be the same. So I think in many ways, number one, it humanized him. And number two, it's perhaps his greatest achievement. Coming back, playing on an artificial hip that would be the same exact model your grandma would have had in the 1990s, and being a legit major leaguer not a great major leaguer but a legit major leaguer is otherworldly yeah it's crazy to think about like you think about the whole perspective of bo jackson's career he's sort of like a supernova where he comes in white hot he's a star of attention for like four or five years and then he basically flames out and then he just quietly goes into the night and lives his own life he has no interest in sort of being the public guy and like mugging on talk shows or showing up at radios or being around like all these other alums and teammates he's like he's had to be a family at this point he didn't even, first of all, when he was playing, the teams never had his phone number. Yeah. <laughs> they just like, he wouldn't give it to him. He was very sort of to himself. He wasn't going out chasing tail. He wasn't going out getting wasted. He was married. He was devoted to his wife, Linda. He had three kids. He was a good dad. Now he's a grandpa. It's a, it's so, it's so refreshing to me that you're not going to turn on a TV today and see Bo Jackson sitting across from Skip Bayless barking about how so-and-so athlete couldn't carry his jock. Like, you're not going to see that. He's not the guy who's going to say, Shohei Otani, what he's doing is no big deal. You should have seen what I did. Just pitching and hitting. Who cares? I'm playing. Like, he's not that guy. He's home in Illinois. He's a businessman. He shovels his driveway. He hunts. He drives his Ford truck. He raises his kids. He's a good husband. It's a great ending. It's it's the preferred ending. Yeah, it's definitely the preferred ending. While I have you, I do want to ask you about, like, the whole winning time stuff because I I am a big fan of the HBO show and they based it off your book. I do want to ask yep. you while you're here, like how did this end up happening? How did HBO come to you and say, you know, we want to turn this in this book into a TV show? Uh, it's crazy. I was living in New Rochelle at the time. So not far from where you were. And um, a guy calls me, he's a screenwriter named Jim Hecht and his big credit. I did, you know, I do the IMDB page look and he's uh, his big credit is uh, Ice Age 2. The meltdown and i'm like this guy wants it but he comes to my house 
And he's like, I just love the Lakers. I think this book could be something. I was wondering if you'd give me the rights to shop it around. And I said, all right. And nothing happens, nothing happens, nothing happens. For years, nothing. Updates, but nothing. And then not that long ago, really, um, HBO. Oh, no, I met with Adam McKay. Do you know Adam McKay? Yes, the director. Yeah. Adam McKay wants to meet with me and Jim Hecht. And I go to Adam McKay. I didn't know who he was. I had to Google Adam McKay. And I go to Adam McKay's house. And he's great. He loves the book, blah, blah, blah. Then HBO sends me a contract. I'm still thinking, all right, but this is never going to happen. Like, this is all just, it's nice, but it's not going to happen. And then um, I start seeing, like, I think I read it. A friend of mine actually said, uh, did you see, like, The Hollywood Reporter today? And I'm like, no, because I don't read that. And it's like Adrian Brody agrees to appear in an HBO series based on Laker book. And I'm like, whoa, that's my Laker book. And then it's <laughs> Sally Field, and that's John C. Riley. And now here I sit with a TV show. It's the craziest thing ever. Craziest thing to ever. If you told me Mail Pack High School, uh, age 50, I'll be living in Southern California, a producer on a TV show based on my book. Uh, I didn't have that on my bingo card at all. Yeah, what was your involvement with the show? Like this text coming to you, like every once in a while, like, oh, like how, we're doing, we're about doing this. Like, how do you feel like this would have gone? That you used to have involved like that way? Oh, yeah. So this season, season two, I'm actually a producer on the show. And I don't actually know what that means, except I'm listed as a producer. They send me every script. I read them all. I give my thoughts. They ask me about casting. Like they send me all the reels when they're casting new people, the demos. Who do you think? Um, my wife, kids, and I were all in season one. Uh, I think I'll be in season two, you know, just little cameo things. And, um, you know, I go to set every once in a while. It's, man, it's a freaking greatest thing ever. It truly is the greatest thing ever. It's like going to Hollywood camp. It's like if someone said to me, would you pay if I, you know, would you pay $5,000? And they're going to let you spend a day with all these movie stars on a set in Hollywood. And you'll get to be in this show and you'll get a couple lines. Um, would you do it? And I'd be like, I might do that. And that's that's in my life now. Like, it's ridiculous. It's the coolest thing ever, man. Yeah, I, I say I love the show. It's one of my favorite shows of the year. I watched the entire first season. I'm very excited for the second season here. Like, what was your favorite moment from the first season of the show? I, I got a couple I could think about. My favorite scene... All right, well, there are two. One, my wife is in the first episode, and you can see her. You would know because you know my wife. But um, you know in the first episode, there's the coin flip to see who gets the number one pick? Yes. My wife is the Chicago Bulls secretary. So she is standing right over the shoulder of the Bulls guy. And at one point, you hear her laugh, and you see her laugh. And that's my wife. You remember, but I'm just saying it's a favorite moment in our family. My favorite scene is – oh, there's two. I love in the first episode – when Magic is walking through his house in East Lansing and he goes, his mom says, uh, magic is a devil word. And he goes, devil don't hoop like me, though. Like, I love that whole <laughs> sequence. And then I love the Larry Bird, Magic Johnson press conference in Boston, where the guy who plays Larry Bird is so good. His name's Sean Patrick Small. He's the best. He spits into his can of like, you know, bud and he's chewing tobacco. And he goes, can we just get this shit over with? And they walk in and they have this press guy. I love that. Why? What's yours? Yeah, I think most two are pretty good. I love the open. I think it's episode seven when like J and, uh, John C. Rowley's in the forum is Jerry Buss. And they do, they, they basically freeze everyone. He's talking and this monologue, uh, about all of that. I love that scene so much. Yeah, so good. I mean, the one, I have a daughter who's, uh, I have a kids who are both teenagers. The scene, the opener to the one scene when he's with a woman in the restaurant and you see basically what he's doing to her yeah. with his fingers. <laughs> I was like, it's a great scene. It's obviously a great scene. It's great TV. It's gripping. It tells you it's sexualized. 
watching it with my kids a little mm-hmm. awkward. Yeah, a little uncomfortable. Little uncomfortable, but still okay. Yeah, I also I also understand the HBO option the rights to your second Laker book on the Shaq Kobe uh, Phil Jackson era here. Like, how do you think that would end up being a show? I was taking on a different perspective now. I, I was giving the track passing Kobe Bryant a few years ago. Yeah, I think number one, everything is a long shot in Hollywood, right? Like yeah. you would need winning time to go a long time. And who the hell knows? You just never know. That's one thing I've learned out here. So just because they optioned it doesn't actually mean it's going to happen. You know, it's all just like knock on wood. Um, It'd be really fascinating. Like, because someone said to me the other day, how in the world would they ever cast Shaquille O'Neal? Like, how can you cast Shaq? And I would think that too. But then I saw how they casted Magic and Kareem, which is masterful. Like, just masterful. So I think um, I think they'd be able to. I do think it's a little cautious, of a, more cautious of a dance because people out here in Southern California, they Kobe is really a deity after his passing in particular, with, with good reason. And I think it would, you would have to be careful. You could not. I think there'd be a lot of raw feelings if you went incredibly hard on Kobe. Yeah, I get that sense as well. I also do feel like in terms of all the Laker products out there, I mean, they had their whole own produced documentary on Hulu about this. And Magic had his own yeah. thing. I think like this was definitely the most compelling of all of these things because like I feel like it was more real than those are where they're basically giving their rosy picture of like what's going on with the Lakers. Well, that's the thing about it all, really. And in a way that relates to Bo Jackson, like um, people will be like, like Bo put out a tweet not that long ago and he's like, uh, just if something's an unauthorized biography, I don't remember his exact words, but like, it's just about the money and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, he's like, if you want to get the truth here, here I am. And it's like, it doesn't actually work that way. Like it really doesn't work that way because everyone telling their own stories is varnished, is uh, biased. And that's just true. If you told me your story, you're not going to tell me about the time you wet your pants. You're going <laughs> to tell me about the time you did something amazing. And if I tell you my story, I'm not going to tell you about all my fails or I'm not going to highlight them. But the shortcomings, the failures, the hardships, those tell you so much about a person's character. They really do. And also talking to someone's friends and classmates and teammates tells you so much. So seeing the Lakers sit there and tell their stories, it's great. I love it. I think they should do it. I give them all like you own it. You should do it. But like it doesn't necessarily mean that it's quote unquote the truth. It means it's your truth the way you want to present it. Absolutely. One last question I have here is obviously I'm a, I'm a big Met fan. So obviously I'm a big fan of your 86 book on the bad guys one year. And this year, this group got another big act because uh-huh. Keith Hernandez has his number retired here. So it makes us sort of like Bo Jacks as well, like that they're sort of a legend still this that 86 team, whereas like they had so many personalities, all these crazy things here. We had a documentary on them last year. And it's amazing about like that team, which won one championship, made the playoffs twice is still so iconic in like in the sports world. So like, what do you expect of seeing how this group has sort of remained relevant over the years? Well, first of all, so the you're talking about the like four part thirty for thirty. Yeah, that cannot last year. Me in my backyard for eight hours yeah. for that thing. Yeah, and um, I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was great. It touched every nostalgia point in my body. I loved everything about it. Um, it was really good. I think they capture a time period that team really, really well. Like. Nowadays, there is no team in America in any sport that's professional where they're going to bring a keg into the clubhouse <laughs> every, every game and just sit around and drink. They're not going to go out to bars. You know, they used to go to Finn McCool's on Long Island and they would sit there and they drink with the patrons. You can't do that anymore. You just can't do it. You're you're going to end up on Twitter two seconds after your first sip, you know, like you can on Instagram and TikTok. You can't do it. They were smoking cigarettes in the clubhouse. You can't do it in the dugout. You can't do it. They were badasses. They were just 
badasses and they were raw and unfiltered and in many regards unlikable and dirty and nasty i mean to me the the story that sums them up that's in the book is lenny dykstra who is one of my least favorite people in the world but a fascinating character he's uh they go to a, he plays golf one day and he's with someone and there are a whole bunch of priests in the clubhouse a golf clubhouse and Dykstra goes, watch this, lifts his leg and farts in their direction. <laughs> like they were so vile, but vile makes for a great story and great characters. And they were amazing characters. That's why people still love them. Yeah, you know? yeah, people still love them. People still love Bo Jackson. Again, the book here is The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson, written by my guest today, Jeff Perlman. Jeff, thank you for all the time today. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, I'll be a follow on social media. I'll keep up with some of your exploits and I'm sure updates on whatever the next book's going to be. Well, my wife would say, don't follow me on Twitter. But <laughs> if you do want to follow me on Twitter, at Jeff Perlman, uh, Jeff underscore Perlman on Instagram. And um, you can go to my website, jeffperlman.com. It's all good. Awesome, Jeff. Thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. All right, the holiday special rolls on here on the Just End the Suffering podcast. We just heard from Jeff Perlman about his fantastic new book about Bo Jackson. Now we're going to take a little trip down memory lane for some of the year's best moments in the podcast. Joining me today to do this year, one of my co-hosts over on the Sky Guys podcast, who you hear from on this feed quite a bit, Nick Fred is here. Nick, how are you? Mike, doing great. Uh, happy to be on Just End the Suffering again. Yep. And uh, I've never done the clip show with you, so I'm, I'm going to, I guess I'm learning as we go. Yeah. Excited to do it. All right, for anybody who's new to this to this podcast, the holiday special episode, every year we have a big guest. Then we, before we get to our NFL picks, we do something pop culturally at the end with uh, Sandra Rosa usually. But before we do that, we go back some of the best moments of the year in the podcast. So we're going to look back at some of the fun clips, fun moments. And Nick, you do pop up here a couple of times. Um, do, here's my question for you. Do I pop up ever as a just end the suffering guest? I do not remember. I know at least Sky Guys, you were definitely there a couple times. Yeah, all right. Well, we'll see. Yeah, I got to pull up my list. And I got to see, see I have a specific order I have these in. We're going to go chronologically. Did that work for you? Yeah, that's what I figured we would do. So it looks like we're starting around January. I guess January, yeah. Yeah, so remember the good old days when Joe Judge was the giant head coach? I wouldn't say the good old days, but I do remember. <laughs> yeah, you remember the infamous way his tenure ended with the quarterback sneak play? I do, and if I if I recall correctly, it was against Washington. Yes, it was. It was against Washington, and ironically, the team the Giants got to compete with the playoff spot for this year. But anyway, after that game happened, Week 18 last year, our good friend Justin Diaz came on the podcast, and he shared his thoughts on this play. So let's go back to episode, believe it or not, 242. This is the quarterback sneak play, Justin's commentary on it. When I see that, if I was John Mara, like, he would not phase the game. He would have been fired on the spot. Like, the fact that he actually had a job the rest of the game is mind-boggling to me. I totally agree. It's it's an embarrassment to the sport. I mean, I don't I, – I saw Dan Orlovsky today said there were, like, 3,000 third and eight plays this year, something like that, obviously a very high number. I'm sure you can guess how many plays of those were uh, a QB sneak. <laughs> one. I mean, there might have been one of those in NFL history and in that scenario, third and eight. It's – 
And it, it, when you compare that to his introductory press conference where he said, we're going to be relentless and treat, he, it was such an absurd quote. It sounded, he, he, he knows how to say it uh, like a fascinating, intriguing quote. He said, like, we're going to treat every play like it has a history of its own. Like that attitude is great. I love that attitude. Yeah. Treat every play like it, it could be your last and, yeah. and it could be a big play. And it's, he couldn't have done the more polar opposite. He didn't even trust his quarterback to hand off the ball. And not like, what are you freaking kidding me? Yeah. It, that even a handoff would have pissed me off because in today's NFL, you go, you try and drive down the field, you try to make a big play. You don't just hate. I mean, I, I actually don't care that much because I haven't watched them in months. Or like, I, I mean, I'm, maybe I, I shouldn't admit that because you have me on as the diehard Giants fan, but I, I mean, that's obvious. I, I, how could you watch them? But I still get mad when I hear these things because they're keeping him. Like, he, he gave up. He doesn't. He he doesn't even. He he doesn't understand. You don't punt. You don't play to punt in 2022. That's not how football is played anymore. It hasn't been played that way in 30 years. <laughs> Troy Aikman and John Elway knew they were throwing the ball pretty far down the field. Like people <laughs> people have been able to throw the ball far down the field for decades now. Judge, you freaking clown. You don't play for the punt. It, it's the most pathetic mindset. And it's so cowardly for someone that just likes to get up on this podium and act tough and say, we ain't some clown show. You literally are exactly a clown show. You're you, you coach like you're scared of your own shadow. Man, the, it's always fun when Justin gets off on a rant there. Always. Yep. Yeah. I always enjoy whenever he comes on. I, I always make sure to listen to any of his uh, segments. Yeah, we record. I think that was in that weird limbo period where, like, Joe Judge hadn't been fired yet, and we started waiting for Mauer to make a move, and then he did make the move. So, like, that was a fun spot to get Justin in. You must have been filming or recording because he got fired two days after the game. You must have recorded the day after the game or yeah, the night of the game. Yeah, we recorded Monday night. Like, the, like he got fired Tuesday morning. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that was his last game there. And, uh, yeah, unbelievable. I mean, everything Justin said is completely right. It's. It was mind-boggling, and I'm glad we don't have to deal with that anymore. Absolutely here. Let's go to uh, us on the Sky Guys here. This is about the time of year we're talking about the Book of Boba Fett here, and we're going to the finale for this clip here. you have an idea where we're going with this one? I don't. I, I was going to guess Pete with the Power Rangers, but I don't know. It is, it is involved Pete here, so this is a very infamous moment from the Book of Boba Fett Chapter 7, Episode 253 in the, in the Just of the Suffering feed, so... Let's check out uh, our memory of a very famous spin move. Did one of the Cyberpunk Power Rangers have to do a spin move before? Yeah, ridiculous. Spin move. <laughs> Did anyone like, I mean, Nick caught it, but like he's protecting Black K and he was like, we're getting shot at spin move and then I'll shoot. Like, I yeah. don't think anyone ever thinks that way. That was ridiculous. Whoever made that scene up and told him, you know, be really cool is if you, as you're getting shot at, you spun in place didn't move at all. Didn't dodge anything. Just spun and then shoot. I, I think that's later in the episode. I feel like it's because I haven't linked up with Black K yet. We'll definitely touch on that again. But Nick, I did feel like it's a little bit out of the Black Widow playbook where Yelena is saying to Natasha, like, why do you always do those flips? Like, they don't add anything to your to the uh, fight here. Yeah, it does. And and just so Pete knows, he's not alone. Like, I, I saw I found an entire article on the spin on the spin move. <laughs> just now and they posted at 10 15 this morning like people like made no sense like what was the point you were he was already there like it's one thing to do a 180 because you turn around he did a 360 to end up in the same position he was already in yeah did he get leverage or something like uh he got speed the bullet yeah. came faster because yeah. he spun yeah. 
Yeah, that book of Boa Fett, uh, Nick. I feel like that's an infamous uh, sore spot for Pete. I vividly remember that exact clip happening. <laughs> I mean, I remember, I remember the article finding it. I remember all of it, and here we are. What ten months later, at least, probably. I think that show ended around yeah February, like February, like first or second week of February, right? Yeah, right around the Super Bowl ended. Yeah, and it's about ten months later now, and it hasn't gotten any better. That's been moved. That was utterly ridiculous, and it, it, to this day. On the Sky Guys podcast, Pete brings this up every, probably on average, every three episodes that's been moved. Yeah, I think we've talked at least four or five times during Andor. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean. So, definitely least... another, another, uh, so, so far we're two for two on embarrassing moments and things that we love. <laughs> yep, and the spin move is fan, is fantastic. It's got it's going to go down in forever. And if you've seen the YouTube video of the ridiculous, like, things they have spinning and exploding, it's it's phenomenal. Yeah. All right. Let's go ahead to March a little bit. March, man, is uh, how far are you from St. Peter's now where you are in Jersey? Not close. <laughs> so you're not, not close. You weren't tempted to go down to campus and hang out when they were having the magical March Madness run? No. I mean, St. Peter's is what, in Jersey City, right? Yeah. Um, an hour, maybe a little less. Yeah. They maybe, maybe 45 minutes. Yeah. But you would say that March Madness, the most memorable thing about this was the St. Peter's run this year. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I had our, our our college basketball guy, Troy Moriello, on the podcast. He's the host of the Seeing Red podcast. I don't know if you know, Nick, if you've watched the, Carton sh- the Craig Carton show on Fox on FS1 in the mornings, he's actually the researcher on that show. Oh, okay. He gets on screen sometimes. This is before the Carton show era. So Troy had some thoughts on St. Peter's. So let's hear what he had to say. This is from episode 262. All in all, this is still going to be what I think it might be the greatest Cinderella run the tournament's ever seen. Oh yeah, it was it was absolutely fantastic. Um, the resolve that they showed, you know, taking down you know three teams on their way to the Elite Eight, we've never seen anything like it before. Um, you kind of had a feeling that when it did end, it was going to kind of go up in flames in a blowout, like we saw on Sunday against North Carolina. Um, you know, I, I don't think anyone saw them losing like a five point game or something like that. I think, in my opinion, when they did lose, it was going to be something like that where a team just overpowered them. Uh, but yeah, it doesn't take away. The incredible run that they had, what a job that Shaheen Holloway did uh, at St. Peter's, you know, getting them all the way to the Elite Eight. Like I said, we've never seen this before. Uh, That's what March Madness is just all about. You know, if you would have gone back two weeks ago and told anyone St. Peter's is going to be playing in the Elite Eight against North Carolina, um, you know, you could probably count on one hand or two hands how many people in, in the world had that. Uh, on their bracket going in, going into or right after Selection Sunday. So, uh, you know, it just speaks to to this tournament and what's great about this tournament. And, you know, it's the unpredictability of, you know, who knows what's going to happen. This is a prime example of that. A 15 seed from right around here in Jersey City, uh, making it all the way to the Elite Eight. A uh, very, very cool story, you know, getting them on the national stage. So although it ended kind of poorly for them, doesn't take away that's just a crazy run that they had. This was absolutely wild. I remember this is happening, especially because we are both Iona alums. We play in the same conference, St. Peter's, and like Iona usually in there a lot. They're one and done. Your St. Peter's was like one of the smallest endowments in the country. It has a well, like legitimate like a high school gym as their as their setup here. They go to the Elite Eight within, and come within 60, 40 minutes of the Final Four. Kind of reminds me of Loyola, what they did a few years ago. Except Loyola, people compare these a lot, but Loyola won the championship once. Yeah, the six. Like the so it's, it's really, it's really not that comparable. Like this is a much different situation. And what St. Peter's did was, let's just say, good for the Mac, right? 
It was great for the Mac. It put it, it really like great, the fir- good for the Mac, but they lost all their players. Unfortunately, they all went to uh, and their coach. They all transferred to Seton Hall, right? Yeah, and the coach went there. Yeah, so they lost everybody. Unfortunately for them, but it does help put the conference on the map and the team on the map. But I guess to his point of everyone, you know, you can count everyone on one hand, two hands who had that outside of the university. Of course, you know, you have the people who, when you go to school there, you put your team. All the way, even though they have no chance. I guess those people's brackets actually did pretty well. Yeah, I mean, every every year I try to pick Iona win a game, they have not come through for me, so maybe this year will be the year if they get there. Yeah, maybe. We'll find out. All right. Next up here, let's go Let's go ahead for a minute. Let's go down to back to spring training like, like in baseball after the lockout was over. Your brother and I, uh, your brother's a regular on this podcast. We do the over-unders every single year. So he did. Like, you know I clocked him this year on those. I remember that he picked the Tigers. Yeah, as an over. Am I right about that? As an over? And I think he may have had the Giants as an over, which I told yeah. him was a big mistake. Yeah, he had an over 85 and a half. I understood the logic of that one. I told him that was a, that's a line that Vegas puts there on purpose to get people to take the over, and they know exactly what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah, so he went two and four. I went five and one, and one of my winning picks was the Met number here. So here's my rationale for the Met over. Is he talking with your brother at this point in the podcast? It's episode 263. All right, I'm up now. I'm going to take another over here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump on the Mets over the 19 and a half wins because I do think that the way they built this team is a lot better than it's been in the past. They have more pitching. They have better pitching depth than they do. The lineup, they made some necessary changes. Right now there's more contact. There's less strikeouts. They could play better defensively, particularly up the middle of the field. And I think, I know the division is tricky, but I think this is a low bar to clear. Plus, you know that the owner is willing to spend whatever it takes. They want to take out money during in season to get a big bat that they need or a big bullpen arm. I think there's going to be commitment to improve from the Mets. I think they get bounce backs from Lindor and some of the other offensive guys. I'll take the over in the 90 and a half. The Mets were on my list for the overs too. I, I like it. I think it's a good pick. Yeah, I just feel like I we've all, I think you and I picked them going over each of the last like four years doing this. So I feel like this year we're due to get get it right. Yeah, it's been it's been a while. It's been a while since they went over, but uh, we've been picking it over and over again. And uh, eventually, I think it's going to happen. I think this is going to the accurate predictions category. I feel like I had a pretty good read on what the Mets were going to do back in April. Doesn't it like? This was eight months ago. You made this prediction. Hearing it now, I'm sitting here like, of course, that's obvious because <laughs> we saw the season play in front of our eyes. Like, that, that, think about the Mets at 90 and a half, but how good they were this season. Yeah. Seems like a joke. And that was right before they lost to Grom, too, because never dropped by two after the Grom got hurt. Team who won 90 games this year for for reference was Seattle. Yeah. How much better are the Mets than Seattle? A lot better. A lot better. That's right. It sounds so obvious when you say it back. When you say it now, because we have twenty twenty vision. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty. But you know, um, just curious. Who did you miss out on? The one I missed out on was the Toronto Blue Jays at ninety two and a half. They had ninety two, so I almost went six for six. Oh wow! Yeah, wow. Look at that. I was that close to the perfect run. Yeah, that's something. Uh, speaking of uh, perfect runs here, you know we do a mock draft on the podcast every year now when the NHL draft rolls around. When did that start? This year? Uh, well, I think in 2021. I think in 2020 we started this. So this is the third year running. I do it with uh, Alan Austin, who is one of our great contributors to the pop culture sector. He is a big NFL guy. So we did some mock draft picks here, and I had the Jets 
on one of my picks here. I took the number 10. So here, I explain why the Jets are going to take Garrett Wilson, number 10 in the draft. This is from episode 266. They've been doing a lot of homework on the receiver class. They've had basically every top receiving prospect come to Florham Park to talk to them. I think they're still trying to get the proven receiver where they could have a guy like A.J. Brown or Debo Samuel come in and be the guy right away. But I think if they stay put at 10, I think they're taking a receiver. Now, why Garrett Wilson over the others? That's what I was going to ask you. Yeah, I think in terms of just, you know, pure route running ability, I think he is the most polished of the group. Drake London has upside in terms of his physical tools, but I think they want a guy who's more of a classic guy that can move all around the field as opposed to like a true burner like Drake London is. No, I, I think if you're the Jets, you want to give people that Wilson can rely on who are probably a little bit more polished than some of the other prospects. So I think you sacrifice certain skills over reliability at this point for where the Jets are at. That's just my viewpoint of it. I'm glad they made that pick. That worked out very well for the Jets. It did, and I'm looking at the receivers in the draft right now because a lot of times you forget when you get into the mix of the season and you forget who was the rookie who went, when, and this and that. Great receiver class, really. Yeah, I mean, you got Drake London's with the Falcons. He gets opportunities. I mean, the first round alone, you have London, you have Wilson, Olave. We're still waiting on Jamison Williams. You have Burks, uh, Dodson, you have Tra- uh, Traylon Burks. And then even in the second round, you have like Christian Watson. And, and well, we all know what just happened to Wondell Robinson. But there's some good receivers here. Yeah, it's a lot. It's always because I feel like there's so many good receivers in the draft now that like it doesn't make sense to go trade for a guy because your odds of finding somebody who can trade right away out of college is pretty good. Even Sky Moore in the in the in the second related to our friend Sly Moore on yeah. Endor. Yeah, it's the it's uh Sly Moore's a uh, human cousin. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of the pop culture here, we're gonna take a dive into an accurate prediction from uh, our our friend John Stanko. You you know how John Stanko's a huge movie guy. I do. Yeah, he he had some interesting thoughts on Top Gun Maverick in our summer movie preview back in the right before Memorial Day. This is before we knew how big a phenomenon the movie would be. So here is uh, Stanko on Top Gun Maverick from episode two seventy. Even at listen. I love the first Top Gun. Me and Emma will just dance to Danger Zone in the kitchen. It's one thing that we do. I'm so excited for this movie, and I'm stoked the reviews are also astronomically positive. I have not seen a negative review on IMDb or Rotten Tomatoes when I've gone and peaked. Every podcast I listen to has great buzz about this movie. Tom Cruise has poured his heart and soul into this, and it seems to be worth it, which is absolutely crazy that a movie that's made three decades after the original still has the fanfare after this. This is such dad energy of the people in their mid-40s and 50s going to see this movie are going to be absolutely stoked out of their minds. And it's going to make a ton of money, an absolute ton. It's going to be two back-to-back major summers for Cruise, too, because he has Top Gun Maverick, and then he has Mission Impossible uh, next summer. So Tom Cruise has taken over summer 2022 and 2023. He did nail that. I mean, Top Gun Maverick, they have $1.5 So I would highly, still highly recommend that. Anybody yeah. who's not seen it yet, go watch this movie. It was really good. Well, I'm on that. I'm on the list. Yeah. People haven't seen it. Yeah, I mean, I think if you have Paramount Plus, it is coming there on streaming on on uh, the 23rd of December. Yeah, I feel like a big part of this movie um, with why it did so well is I feel like it was the welcome back to the theater movie. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, I, I, you know what I mean? In Spider-Man, like, uh, uh, No Way Home was a... Spider-Man was that movie. Spider-Man was that movie. It was the welcome back to the movie, but it was a winter movie. This was like our first summer back in the movie. It was the first big summer blockbuster post-COVID. 
Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, COVID technically is still going on, but in terms of like more normalcy, like Top Gun Maverick, sort of the movie welcomes back. It was a really good, really good experience too. Because if you watched it right. in the theater, it was incredible. I'll have to add it to the list. Yeah, definitely add it to the list here. And I know you were a basketball guy here, so I wanted to make sure I got you a, an actual NBA clip here. So we're going to talk about the Knicks here. So you you know like the Knicks have sort of been this perpetual cycle of never do, doing good beyond, you know, like at best like a second-round playoff run. Yeah, for what? What is it, 22 years now? Roughly. Uh, we do have a... Like the guy, I had the guy from the Sorry Sports Sorry to Interrupt podcast on in June to sort of do the NBA draft and get ready for the offseason. Uh, Sean from the Sorry to Interrupt podcast had his take on what's right and wrong. So I'll play it for you and get your opinion, see if you think he's on something here. So this is episode 279 about the New York Knickerbockers. I think the problem, the biggest problem that the Knicks have is that they they are not an attraction for the best players. So the players they get are guys that other teams don't really want to pay. And on top of that, too, you've also got young guys that they hype up or their fan base hypes up more so than they probably are worth hyping up. And as bad as it is that Thibodeau is not playing guys when the season's long over to figure out what their value is, or at least see if they're going to be sticking here, they're... I, I really don't – I think he's probably saying, look, I get these guys in practice all the time. They're not as good as you think they are. So with those things being, you know, all factors, I, I really don't know what the Knicks' best likelihood is of, you know, really, really increasing the value and probably the productivity of this roster. All right, so I'll go to you on this one. What do you think about his assessment of the Knicks? I think about the Knicks, I think – the first point's absolutely right. They're not a destination. They were always a destination. They're supposed to be a destination. It's New York, so, you know, everyone thought they were a destination. But unfortunately for them, they are not a destination. And I completely agree that, that the, the fans overvalue a lot of their players. Uh, personally, I think R.J. Barrett is basically a bust. And I'll, I'll die on that hill. He's in his fourth year, and he's shooting less than 40%. I just don't understand the hype about him. I feel like if he's on any other team, it would be... This guy's awful, but because he's a Nick, I don't see that. As you look at the top five in that NBA draft, you have Zion, Morant, him, DeAndre Hunter, and Darius Garland. I think he's clearly the worst of those five players, and that's a shame. Not to say he was a, not to say he's a horrible player, but of those five, and when they, I think you leave that 2019 draft as a failed draft. You picked the wrong player out of those five guys. I think. And then completely agree with his point with you have a guy like Tom Thibodeau and you're not this season so much, but you're throwing Derek Rose out there for 35 minutes a game when you have, or Julius Randall out there for 35 minutes a game when you have Obi Toppin sitting on the bench. You don't even know if he's good yet. He looks great, but he plays eight minutes. So who knows? Yeah. It's a fascinating scenario because especially it's a lot of these Knicks fans, especially the past few years, whether it's like need to play Emmanuel quickly more. You got to start him. You got to get Obi Toppin more run, Cam Reddish more run. And then like David, this coach dad is clearly saying like, Hey, like, they're fine as they are. Like you guys think they're going to become stars, I and mean, we can see they're not. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it's unfortunate, but basketballs probably you hear a lot about like purgatory with sports. Yep, you hear that like oh you don't want to go seven and nine or seven and ten in football. You don't want to do that. Basketball is where it's the worst. Yeah, where the purgatory can really catch you for a long time because in football 
you get one good offensive tackle, next thing you know, your running game starts working. Next thing you know, your play action starts working. Next thing you know, because your defense isn't on the field, they're doing good. One player can turn the whole team around. You see teams go 3-13 and 13 and then 11-5 and five the next year. In basketball, if you don't get that star, which you're not going to get being the 11 seed, it's really hard to turn it around, near impossible to turn it around. Yeah, it's, it's nuts because you think about it here. It's like, it, you feel like in the uh, NBA, I feel like if you are like anywhere from like the five seed to like picking seven in the draft, like that's purgatory. Yeah. At least when you're like a five seed, though, you could potentially bring somebody in to make you a top three seed. Like you've seen that before. We've seen it with the Celtics. Yep. We've seen it with the Heat. Well, not really the Celtics. We talk about the Heat. When the Heat were like a six seed, and then they go and get LeBron and Bosch, and next thing you know, they're basically a dynasty. It's possible when you're that good, like you're one or two players away. But if you're the 11 or 12 seed, you're one or two players away from being the five seed. <laughs> Don't want to be anyway. Yeah, that's where the Knicks are sort of are right now. So Jalen Brunson, though, has worked out for I think the, the, the Knicks. I think the Knicks are like the, the definition right now of purgatory. Average. If you're better than the Knicks, you're a good team. If you're worse than the Knicks, you're a bad team. Yep. They're right in the middle. Yep, that's for sure. And somebody who's not average here, can we have seen the year that Edwin Diaz had coming? Those trumpets were playing a lot this year. They certainly were here. And I think in the middle of the breakout season here, I had uh, Tim Ryder from the Apple uh, NYM blog. So he came on here. He had some thoughts about Edwin Diaz. Let's hear what he had to say. It's in episode 282. Oh, through the roof. His stuff is just so nasty. I've talked about it a bunch on um, on my podcast, Simply Amazing. You know, it took him some time to go from being just a thrower to a pitcher. Um, the confidence that he has, not only in his four-seam, which, you know, years ago, you remember when he first got here, you know, his four-seam is a lot of movement. It moves like a sinker almost. It goes side to side just so much. You know, he kind of had to rein that in and harness that, keep it not only on the plate but off the middle of the plate. And, uh, yeah, he's he's been able to do that extremely effectively. You look at his slider, which a couple of years ago, you know, if, if he wasn't feeling it, he wouldn't lean on it. It's always been absolutely nasty, but the confidence that he has in his slider now, and he, he I think he said it in a couple of post-game interviews, like, oh, how does the slider feel tonight? Just one word answer, nasty. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's such a weapon that, you know, he can use it against the best hitters in baseball, and these guys are, you know, swinging a toothpick up there. And it's really, really fun, and... uh yeah, I think he's a surefire Hall of Fame. Um, <laughs> easy, take it easy. Surefire All Star selection uh, going into uh, the middle of July, and uh, yeah, uh, the step forward that he's taken and and what his contract status might be moving forward. Uh, yeah, it's all very intriguing stuff. Well, I mean, he did pitch like a Hall of Fame level this year. It turns out how great he was. He gets the big contract here. I think he makes a, Tim makes a good point about the slider here because. I think when we first got here, he sucked so bad with the not going to look at the slider. I think a lot of that was just due to the fact the baseball was terrible. Remember, that was the 19 year where the baseball was like a rocket ship and the ball was slick, was slick as hell. I think the normal ball is sort of stabilized. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you what, though. If he does uh, eight more years, maybe 10 more years in a row of exactly what he did last year, he definitely is a Hall of Famer. Yeah, he's got he's got time. Well, let, let's do that. Let's, let's do 10 years in a row as a dominant. Uh, 1.31 ERA, and then maybe we can see him in Cooperstown. I take that. You definitely would. Hopefully, they're all for the Mets. Yeah, well, right now at least three of them are because he hasn't opted after three years. Yeah. All right. Now let's go to another interesting moment here. You remember the captain on uh on ESPN, the Derek Jeter documentary? 
I do. I watched it. Um, I think I did one of the episodes with you, the first one, I think, or the yeah, second. Or yeah, you something. did the first two hours with me that, that one year. So I think one thing we know is of the course documentary, I feel like the A-Rod was sort of the target of the director, Randy Wilkes. I felt like he was sort of like the whipping boy for all of Jeter's problems. Yeah, if you remember, I spoke about that. I said that I feel like they were just kind of throwing everything at him, and it wasn't really his fault. Yeah, it certainly was here. And one of our friends, uh, Joe Chaffee, was, came on. He did, I think, episodes five and six of The Captain. And he particularly had a specific instance where he felt like A-Rod was getting unfairly blamed here for this. So let's check out what Joe had to say about The Captain. It's episode 287. The steroid stuff. Yeah. A lot of Jeter's teammates, Lemons, Pettit, Giambi, Jason Grimsley, not you know, big. Knobloch, Sheffield. Only a rod gets the blame. Only a rod. How? Yeah. How? Like again, you talk about like an editing thing. It, 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 no, no. I, how do you only bring up a rod in the steroid era in baseball? Like how? I mean, if I'm a rod watching this edit, basically seeing that I'm being dragged the entire thing, I would be pissed. Ridiculous. Yeah. I think he's not wrong. I'm with the, I call him the Joge. Yeah. I'm with the Joge. Me, me and the Joge have talked about this, you know, off this air, you know, I, I'm in person numerous times. We're in complete agreement. We're both big Alex Rodriguez fans, both big Derek Jeter fans too. I mean, what he did for the Yankees, we're both big Yankee fans. So, but they completely threw him under the bus here. And I don't know why. I don't, he reminds me a lot of Giancarlo Stanton. It's like he came here and he was just, I think it's because they make a lot of money. They're just villains right away, no matter what they do. Like, and, and now I see people turning the other way when it comes to Stanton and A Rod because I see guys like um, see guys like Joey Gallo. I see guys like Sonny Gray who they don't do well. They just laugh and they just leave and say I didn't want to be in New York anyway. Which, by the way, I met I ran into Joey Gallo a few weeks ago. And that's exactly what he said. <laughs> Not joking. That's a true story. It's a true story. And. You have guys like Giancarlo and A-Rod. They get booed. You know what they do? They show up earlier the next morning and do their work their ass off to become a better player. And those are the people you should be respecting. Those are the people you should be criticizing. Okay. First things first, I think this is sort of Randy Wilkins' choice. Do you agree with me on that? I feel like the director sort of like, oh, I'm going to make A-Rod the villain in my story. I feel like that's number one. And Jeter signed off on it. I guess so. I guess so. And number two, I need to hear more about this Joey Gallo story. Like, where did you run into him? Like, how long was this conversation? I didn't speak with him, but I did run into him. It is in Dallas. Yeah. Because I, I guess he I guess he lives there because he played for Texas for a while. And a friend of the podcast, a friend of ours, Joe Frederick, had a long conversation with him and basically just said to him, you know, I, I was always a big fan of yours. It's a shame what happened in New York. And his response was, I never wanted to be there anyway. I was miserable from the day I got there. Well, it sort of makes sense. You look at his highlights your force on the field win. Didn't get much better in L.A. So I don't know if he wanted to be there either. Does he Does he only need to be in one specific town to hit well? We'll find out, I guess, when he plays in the minors next year. I'm calling my shot right now. Joey Gallo's a Pittsburgh Pirate next year. Well, I actually have some insider information on Joey Gallo because he did say that he is trying to get back to, to, to our friend Joe Frederick. He is trying to get back on Houston, uh, not Houston, sorry, uh, the, Texas. Yep. On the Rangers, and if they don't offer him a contract, apparently the Astros have expressed it, have expressed that they are interested. Interesting. So information. This is also being that, recorded. That doesn't necessarily mean they'll sign him, but he they had basically said we would like to talk, and he said he wants to basically said I want to sign it with the Rangers, but if they don't want me, I'll hear you guys out. 
All right, so this is something we'll put in the time capsule here because we're recording this podcast, this episode segment on December 1st. So when this podcast comes out, I'll let you guys know in the pick segment if uh, Nick's information was accurate. We'll see. It's not my information. It was Joey Gallo's information. It was information you you have collected from a friend who collected from Joey Gallo. Yeah, I mean, I was standing right there. I just didn't talk to him. Yeah, so you let so so is our friend Joe got the information from Joey Gallo. And yeah, I was I was right there. I mean, I heard him. I just yeah. didn't butt into the conversation myself. And yeah. what I found so funny was it's Joey Gallo. You know, he's yeah. whether or not we like him or not, he's a, a big. I don't want to say star, but he's a famous player, right? A he's famous all, person. He's all star. What's funny is when, when he left the. We were at some sort of club. When he left the club, for some reason, he found the need to go up to one of the guys we were with, tap him on the shoulder, and said, "Hey, I just wanted to let you know I'm leaving." And the guy's like. You're telling me? <laughs> very, very strange. He was like, what? Why are you telling me you're leaving? I, I don't even know. Like, I appreciate it. Thanks. Get home safe, I guess. I guess you made, I guess you made quite the impression on him. Yeah, I guess so. It wasn't It wasn't our friend uh, Joe Frederick. It was somebody else. It was one of Joe's friends that he just said hi to real quick, and he felt the need to say goodbye to him. Very strange. Yeah, so that's a, that's a, so a Jelly Gal connection to the podcast. Maybe we can have him on one day. Maybe we can. And speaking of people who I'd love to have on here, I mean, like, did you watch any, did you see the fam- famous Hard Knocks moment of Aiden Hudson singing Billie Jean? No, actually. So this is great moment from the Hard Knocks and Mirror of the Detroit Lions this year where they're doing the rookie talent show in the in the locker room. Uh, Aiden Hudson gets up there. He sings Billie Jean to the entire Lions team. The clip goes viral because it's absolutely ridiculous. I covered the episode with our pop culture correspondent, Sandra Rosa, here, so... This is our conversation about the Aiden Hudson, Billy Jean moments. I'll give you a little flavor from that. This is episode 288. This was amazing. I was laughing the entire time watching this. It was <laughs> so hilarious and amazing. Yeah, not only does Aiden Hudson have like a pretty good singing voice, he has the lyrics down. He's got some good moves to go with the song. <laughs> I just love like how he messes up in the beginning and then he's like, wait, 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 no, 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 I got this. And then like it cuts after they're singing to his family. He's like, yeah, they're like, yeah, you're really still, still living off that high of like performing. And I thought that was the funniest thing because this is like Lily white boy from the suburbs of like Detroit singing Billie Jean and everyone's getting into it. It was amazing. It was so funny. Yeah, and you have to watch the video because at one point they cut to a big shot of the whole auditorium. There's a guy sitting in the second row, rips his shirt off, flings it forward. A guy in the front row and yell just grabs it one hand, no look, and immediately starts waving in the air. Like, this is incredible. I was going to say, if you're on TikTok, it's definitely trending on the For You page as well. So, like... It's just amazing. Like if you watch it over and over again, you can't even imagine. It feels like a, like a glitch in the Matrix. Yeah, so you gotta check out this clip. This is a, a amazing, uh, hard knocks piece of uh, content. Sorry, I lost the mute button. Yeah, Ooh, I think I'm Pete. Yeah, Pete challenged you there. Um, yeah. Um, I gotta check it out. I I rarely watch hard hard knocks, so I, I gotta I gotta check it out. Uh, unfortunately, it's not a show you need to catch up on. You kind of just watch this year's, so yeah. that's good. Unless you're watching the in-season one, the Cardinal one. Yeah, yeah, that came out like a month ago, right? Yeah. What I mean is, I don't have to go back to other one and watch. It's not like it's not like a sitcom or a drama show where I got to follow the storyline throughout all the seasons. Like I watched the NFL. I think I did. I think I know both of the storylines. <laughs> yeah, and 
Teaser for the podcast here. Sandra will be on later. We're going to be talking about the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special. That's going to be coming up at the end of the podcast here. So I've yet to watch that. i got to watch that. Yeah, I'm going to be watching it over the weekend before we record that one with Sam. So that's going to be coming up here next on my queue. But let's talk a little about your football team, the New York Giants here. I mean, going into the year, what would you say your expectation level was for this team? I actually thought they were going to win seven games. And if they lose out, they'll win seven games. So we'll see. We will see. I also had a chance to surprisingly talk to Mike Sando of The Athletic. He does the pick six column every week where he gives us six observations every week. Talked to him before the season about a lot of things, including the Giants. So here's what Mike Sando had to say about the Giants. This is from episode 292. Well, I think some of this is an evaluation of what was there previously and just how sort of bad that was it because obviously they didn't come in and ramp up the roster to make a run this year right i mean they it is ground floor and the expectation should be pretty low but i think if we feel like brian dayball and joe shane are competent people right like they're their first time in, in in the role obviously but if we feel like a lot better about them in terms of what was there before then do they just get a boost it's it's a little bit like like I, I'm not going to say that it's the same type of thing as Jacksonville because it was different deficiencies, but like the fact that the Jacksonville just who was there before left upgrades Jacksonville before we talk about who's there now, right? Yeah. So was were the Giants just kind of in such a funk with the whole Dave Gettleman era and what had become of the coaching staff that just by removing that, or do they get some wins? Right? Do they just sort of come to the surface at least uh, i think that's an interesting part about them and i know you had put down um you know for our potential topics today like who's a team that could you know disappoint or surprise and i don't think the giants are going to surprise anybody like they're going to be in the playoffs necessarily but i think the expectations have been suppressed so far and then they weren't really ramped up by the new regime right they came in and were like almost admitting hey you know this is a process um that could they just be better than people expect because uh, they're not expect no one's expecting anything and the expectations have been suppressed for so long i think he nailed it to be honest with you that's incredible like foresight to say you know like the bar is so low with the giants that like people don't realize that just because like uh brian dable and joe shane are not joe judge and dave gettleman that this team will automatically improve Yep. I mean, you've heard it from me how many times now? Yeah. How many times have you heard it from me that the Giant, that with Dave Gettleman especially and Joe Judge, that it was just never going anywhere? And it was, it was so, it's so funny when you hear people talk about the Giants and they say they'll do things like defend some of the moves that Dave Gettleman made. For example, could have been. Uh, well, I mean, I, I mean, in, in hindsight, it looks awful, but I'll defend the Kenny Galladay thing because, like, at the time, I thought it was a good move. I think we all did, but look what happened. I mean, I, I can't fault him for that because at the time, I thought it was a great move. So did everyone else. It's just obviously been such a bad job, but people will def defend moves like the Leonard Williams trade or the defend the Barkley pick and this and that. But then at the same time, they go, I can't blame Jones because he has no one to throw to. And it's like, well, he's had four years of no one to throw to because of the general manager. Like, I do not see that. Like that was his job to build a, someone to throw to, and he didn't get anyone to throw to. That's his fault. Yeah, that, that is his fault. There's a lot of things here, but you know what? Like, you got to feel confident, at least. You, know, you have the right people in charge. I mean, like, once they get more talent, that seems to be really good. 
I definitely feel they have the right people in charge. I feel that their talent is literally the same it was last year because, as as he just said, they didn't really make any changes in the offseason, nor should they have. But you look at the Giants at the time of recording; they're seven and four. Yep. They could easily be two and eight, two and nine, easily. Oh, no one, no one would have blinked an eye either. And if Joe Judge was the coach, I bet you they were. I bet you they are two and nine. I bet you they lose to Tennessee because they don't go for it. They don't go for it at the end of the game. Absolutely, don't go for it, and they lose that game. Jacksonville. I bet you they lose to Green Bay. I bet you they lose to Baltimore. And then I bet you that, and then I I can't say for sure, but I bet I just think personally they would have lost to Jacksonville and Houston. They'd have five more losses. Yeah, this is literally a Brian Dable masterpiece here. I feel like this is the roughest year to win coach of the year because so many like teams are like coming out of nowhere to be good. So I feel bad for him in that sense, but I feel like this team is really in good good shape for the future. Yeah, I just can't I can't see him winning coach of the year because I think it's a clear choice, but we will see. I, I think it, especially with the way they're playing, I think it has to go to McDaniel. Yeah, that's out there. I mean, Sirianni's out there because the Eagles are ten and one. Like Salah's got to be in the mix. Pete Carroll's got to be in the mix. Like, there's a lot of options. Well, it depends on how it plays out because I've said it before. I personally think the Seahawks. I said it. I think I said it before. I don't know if it was off the air right before we started here. If it was on here, that the Seahawks are. I think they've really hit the top of the, the roller coaster there. I think they're falling way down, and I don't. Th- I think if they finish eight and nine, it's going to be hard to give him Coach of the Year. Absolutely, here. And you remember when if you have, well, go ahead. No, you can finish up. Oh, I was just saying, eight and nine, coach of the year, as compared to I think the Dolphins are going to go like twelve and five. Yeah. So I would think that's that's your coach of the year. Yeah, we'll see what happens there. And speaking of potential coach of the year candidates, Robert Sell got a lot of people's bad side after week one. Remember the receipt thing where he was talking about how he's going to keep the receipts. I do, and I I hope he did keep those receipts because he'd be cashing them in now. I have one more to add to the list because we had some fun with that one. Me and Nick D'Alessio during the week two pick segment. Um, this is episode 293 of talking about Robert Sala's receipts. And I'm, and I'm taking, we're, we're all taking receipts on all the people who continually mock and, and say that we ain't going to do anything. I'm taking receipts and I'm going to be more than happy to share them with all of y'all when it's all said and done. So he went straight to the office, Nick. He's taking the receipts and they're going to shove it in the, everybody's face when the Jets do well. Yeah. You know, Minus all of the bad things that we did in the first quarter, we played pretty good, you know, (laughs) like, how do you, that's duh, you know, like, oh yeah, well, if we didn't make mistakes, the game would have been better. Like, uh, I don't know, as a head coach, you're supposed to, you know, say things that makes you feel like you're confident in your team. It's just like, after that performance for him to be like, yeah, no, but like things look good. We're going to be fine. It's, it it feels kind of hollow, feels kind of empty. The thing that bothers me is the whole, we're keeping receipts, everybody who mocks us here. And let's be clear here about this team. They have won the combined six games the past two seasons. They've not made the playoffs in 11 years. They've picked in the top five of the draft for the past five years. They have lost 13 consecutive games in September by the combined score of 330 to 140. I don't want to hear about taking receipts and all this stuff. You are terrible. Like, And the Jet fan is tired of this bullshit. Like, we're... Every year the season's over before you hit Halloween. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's like what I was saying before. If, if we came away from this game and we were like, you know what? We were like a couple of plays away from maybe winning. Then like, I'd feel okay. But at no point in this game, short of like maybe the opening two drives, did it feel like we were even in it? It kind of felt like we were always a step behind and then we just couldn't even get into it. So uh, if he's collecting receipts, I hope he has like a 
like a big binder with a lot, a lot of room for them because he's going to be collecting a lot of receipts. Add this one to the list, Robert. I mean, like you, this is not a team that I, is at any confidence right now is going to be doing any good because again, no quarterback right now. Joe Flacco has a statue in the pocket. Like they looked awful for most of this game. And at what point do win, we actually have to win games and not just take down notes of who's mocking us? I'll take the L on that one. So, you said season over by Halloween. Now, you didn't, you didn't predict it would happen, but you said, I'm sick of the season being over by Halloween. This is the holiday special episode, and the Jets have a very realistic chance and a clear path into making the postseason. You got two extremely, you have seven wins already. You have two extremely winnable games at the end of the season, plus four other games. And if you take one, it's probably enough. It's nice. It's the first so, time in seven years since they It is nice, huh? Yeah. Yeah. First time in seven years they've been in this in this position. And you got an extremely talented team. And the defense speaks for itself. You could just take the entire defense, say, we're set. The offense, it looks like you're set literally everywhere except the quarterback. And you know what? Mike White showed you a lot last week. So if he keeps that momentum up, that's great. If he doesn't, then you got you got one hole. A big hole, but one hole. Yeah, one hole. Well, speaking of a team that does not have many holes right now, the New Jersey Devils came out of nowhere, sort of red hot. So I did do a hockey preview with uh, Christopher, Christopher, not the Mad Dog Russo, the host of the Sports in the Waiting Room podcast. So he weighed in on the Devils here. I'll give you his thoughts on this team. So this is from episode 290, I think it's 299, so almost 300. Yeah, they should, they should be pushing for a wild card spot. I don't know if they'll make the playoffs this year, but it, it should be a year where they look I think even better than they did last year. I think they actually looked. I think they actually looked fairly good last year. They knocked off some of the best teams. I mean, they they got into just trap meets with you know beat, they beat Colorado and Edmonton. They won some big games, so they can beat some of the bigger teams. It just needs to be more consistent, and they need to have better defense and better goaltending. Now, look, I, I think I, I read the Hockey News had their preview for the Metropolitan Division. And for some reason, they took the Devils to finish last. And I was very surprised at that, especially because I think the Flyers should be worse. And I think the Flyers organizationally just look way worse, honestly. You know, especially with what they did with Yandel. It, it, it just looks like a more downtrodden organization. The Devils, I think, have picked up a lot more. And then you have the possibility. I, I know I said the Islanders should make the playoffs, but there's the possibility of an Islander downturn. And again, Pittsburgh has been complacent over the last five years. You know, Columbus is still kind of up and coming. They're kind of in the same place the Devils are. You know, it, it really is going to depend on health and goaltending. From the goaltending is going to be the biggest part. If they can get better on the back end, they will be a good team, and they will at least be in contention for the playoffs. Well, they have gotten better goaltending, and the back end did shape up, and all of a sudden they're on top of the very competitive Metro division. So maybe as a New, New Jersey resident now, Nick, you should check out the Devils. Mike, forget the division. If the season ended today, the Jet, the, the Jets, sorry, the Devils are the President's Trophy winners. Yeah, I watched them play the they other lead, night. They lead the NHL in points. Yeah, they're they uh, they got really good really quick. Must it's, be nice. I mean, I I I sit here as a Ranger fan. I, I'm not a big, big hockey person. I don't really know much about it. I know the Rangers are supposed to be really good this year, and it looks like they're kind of middle of the pack. So. Hopefully they pick that up, but the Devils, huh? Number one team in the league. 
Never would have seen that coming. I'd rather see them, you know, being attention to the playoffs. Number one team in the league is incredible. But I gave Chris Craig at least mentioning that, you know, if these things happen, they could be really good. Well, we'll see how it plays out the rest of the season. But as of right now, the season were to end today, the New Jersey Devils are going to win the President's Trophy. They certainly are. And I have another fun one for you here. Uh, talk about your favorite manager, Aaron Boone. He's not my favorite. He is your manager. He's not my least favorite. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I don't like him. I don't hate him. Like a lot of Yankee fans hate him. A lot of Yankee fans. I don't. I don't hate him. I definitely don't like him. So I, I'm indifferent to him. But let's hear it. Yeah, this is. I talked to uh, Dan Federico after the Yankees were eliminated from the playoffs by the Astros about some of Boone's pension for making excuses here. Remember the uh, roof that being open being a problem and the whole like. Uh, Exit velo thing. So let's talk. Let's hear what uh, Dan say about Boone's excuses. It's it's become more of a theme than we all like to hear. I mean, this is this is what it is now. We're gonna in a couple of what in a couple of days we're gonna get the Cashman press conference where well we ran into a buzzsaw and we should have been healthy and we didn't have these players who who uh, weren't there and and we didn't get hot at the right time. The excuses are gonna keep piling on and it's gonna be sick and tiring for a lot of fans, including myself. I mean. This is something now we've been dealing with since 2018. I mean, when you look back, 2017 was that they shouldn't be here, but they made it, and it was a feel-good, and it was like, wow, these guys are ahead of schedule. But 2018 up until 2022, this team was primed to win a World Series. They should have been in it. I mean, that's how all the fans viewed it. That's how they were positioned. That's how they were covered by you know a lot of the media. That's just what it was. And time and time again, they've come up short one reason or another, and Every single time, there's another excuse, and we got to get ready for it because Cashman's going to throw it at us. Like I said, whether it's going to be no DJ and Benintendi, or you know they just weren't hot at this time, and, and there's going to be something that we're not going to want to hear, but but it's coming. Absolutely, here. I mean, as a Yankee fan, I'd really talk to you on the podcast about this thing. Like, do, the, do the excuses bother you? Uh, they don't. They don't. They don't bother me from Boone because I don't know what he's supposed to say. They bother me from the front office because the front office has the power to change things. He doesn't have the power to put Manny Machado at third base like he should be. Yeah. He doesn't have that power. Brian Cashman had that power and it was not even considered. They offered him a horrible contract and you look at Machado now, it's like, oh, we had Machado, we may have beaten the Astros. Yeah. Or Bryce Harper. Or Bryce Harper, but they decided that wasn't right. And he's, you're looking at a guy who in San Diego now is coming third and second in the MVP in the, in the last three seasons. But they didn't get him. When it comes to Boone, I'm not. I mean, like, can only do so much. I don't. I don't. The one thing I, the thing I don't like about him is the way he handles the bullpen. But like at the same time, what is he supposed to say after? Like, we're not as good as this team, or what is he supposed to say? Not don't we need better players? I just what I just don't know. Like it's not. I don't blame him. I completely blame the front office. I don't love the mentality of the excuses because that sort of get like I feel like that's a loser mentality you're creating. So like, oh, like if the roof was closed, that ball might have gone out. We might have won the game. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't like the the excuses, but it doesn't bother me the way it bothers me from the front office. When you have Brian Cashman tell me tell us that the league is caught up to us, like caught up to you, you were never ahead. Yeah, you but you got lapped like 12, like at least ten years ago. Yeah, I mean you've had some good seasons. Sure, they've been a good team the last six seasons. They've been a great team. You made the playoffs every season. They've 
gotten to the ALCS three times. That's great. And it is, but don't tell me you're the lead. If anyone, you, you got to be catching up to the Astros and the Red Sox. I mean, because even though the Red Sox in the last six years, because you know how Boston is, they suck one year, then they won the World Series. But they've probably been bad a couple times in those last six years, but they did win a World Series. Yeah, that's true. Let's go ahead now to a fun moment here. Something I heard earlier in the episode. It also came, came out in October. I talked to Jeff Perlman about his uh, Bo ja- his book here about Bo Jackson, the uh, last folk hero. Nick, I have the physical book here. I read this thing right before I talked to, to uh, Jeff. It was definitely a fun read. I highly recommend it for your holiday shopping list. You have anybody who likes Bo Jackson? I don't. I don't know anyone Does specific. It? Maybe the Bo Jackson fan in my life. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe something for. Uh, your I family. like him. Yeah, maybe, maybe your dad would enjoy the book. Maybe. Yeah. Well, before you make decisions about purchasing the book or not, let me give you a clip from earlier in this episode that I played here. Talk up some of the fun uh, Bo Jackson myths that Jeff Perlman unearthed. This is from episode three hundred eight originally, and earlier in the holiday special here. So this is from author Jeff Perlman. Hi there, too. Can I go too? Sure. He played a high school game against Fairfield High in Alabama. And all right, everyone kept telling me, man, he hit a ball and it went so high that by the time it came down, he was at third base. I heard that story. I was like, uh, can I put, can I curse on your, uh, on your yeah, sure. I was like, that's bullshit. Right? That's bullshit. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. All right. I tracked down Eddie Scott, the left fielder for Fairfield High. He's like, yep. He's like, I was playing outfield. The ball was so high. I could not see the ball. It came down, it bounced on the grass. I look up, Bo is rounding third. Ridiculous. Utterly yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. The other one is, it's a first night game in the University of Georgia's baseball history. This is Bo's junior year. And um, they've been trying to get lights for years. Steve Weber, the coach, finally gets the lights. And um, Bo Jackson is booed mercilessly in the outfield for Auburn. And his first at bat, he grounds out, and the fans just boo him. They let him have it. First night, first night game. Have you seen the movie The Natural? I have. So you know the famous scene, it hits the lights and it explodes. Yes. All right. This is 29 days before The Natural comes <laughs> out. Bo Jackson, second at bat, he hits a home run that hits the lights. Hits the lights. He runs back out to, out to the outfield. I think he was playing right field. And the fans stand up and start bowing at him. These are Georgia fans <laughs> bowing. His next two at bats, he hits two more home runs. And his last at bat, he doubles and everyone boos. Yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. And there's no video of that game, but I interviewed so many people Georgia players, Auburn players, spectators, media. I feel like I got a real good feel for it. Yeah. This is some of the fun stuff you find in this book here. Some of the, it's, it's a lot of incredible things you hear about Bo Jackson. It's really interesting. I mean, he, I, I always wonder about him because, you know, he's a legend, right? Yep. Would you, but when you look at his statistics in the NFL, for example, they're not legend statistics. When you look at his baseball statistics, they're not legendary, but he's a legend. So it's something that there has to be more to the story. So if you don't know about Bo Jackson, I guess that book is perfect because that'll explain to you, besides the fact that he played two sports, which is unbelievable, why he's a legend. Because both of those sports, he was pretty good, but he wasn't fantastic, right? Yeah, we also had that hip injury that really ruined his uh, football career. Uh, of, yeah. of, of course, of course, but even the, the seasons he played, it was not the numbers were not off the charts. Yeah, at I, all. I will say the not book, even not even in those stand in those days standards. I will say the book does explain a lot in terms of why, like with all the talent that Bo had, like his, why he was incredible, and that the stats did not pop. It's a good 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 uh, explanation in the book about that. 
And that's exactly what I'm interested in because I, as an outsider who doesn't know the book, who wasn't alive at the time that Bo played um, basically any sport. I mean, I was barely alive when he played a little bit of baseball, but wasn't alive for any of his, any of his NFL time. To me, I look at his stats and go, huh, why was he so popular? He looked like he was okay. And I'm sure that explains it. It sure does here. Let's go ahead. A couple more left. Our friend Dan DiMarti, we have the Sky Guys podcast to talk about episode five of Andor, by the way, the worst episode of the show. He's a big Colts fan, and the Colts made some news this year when they got rid of Frank Reich and they hired Jeff Saturday off the street to be their head coach. What do you think about that when it happened? I thought that they were trying to be as bad as possible, but they're losing sight of the fact that they aren't that bad. <laughs> they're pretty bad, but they're not the worst team, and they're trying to be the worst team, and it's they're like, they don't want to be in purgatory, and they're probably going to be in purgatory. So they're like, how do we make ourselves be really bad, even though we're not that bad? In other words, remember when the Cowboys were so bad because um, because Romo was hurt and they were able to draft Zeke? Yep. Like, that happens a lot, where a team is just really, really bad, and they're able to draft someone because of an injury, so they're artificially bad, and yep. then they're actually really good the next year. They're trying to do that. They're trying to... Keep everything else on their team, but maybe we'll be really, really bad and we'll get a quarterback and then we'll be great. But they're not that bad. So they're trying everything in their power to be that bad. Yeah, well, I got a good theory of that. I spoke to fan size NFL insider Matt Verderan the week that firing happened. So he had some thoughts on this one. So let's go to that one, episode 313. Uh, I think I think the word circus is apt. Um, look, everybody talks about Saturday and what does it mean? Sure, we have that conversation. But to me, it's more about what it says. If you're Jim Irsay and you're doing this, you're telling every one of those coaches on staff that they're useless, that they're not a better choice to be an interim head coach than a guy who's never coached above the high school level. And I don't want to hear that, well, Jeff Saturday's played, and you know that's why, okay, well, you have Reggie Wayne on staff. Why isn't he the interim head coach? Why isn't Cato Jr. the interim, interim head coach? Well, I mean, you, you've got you've got guys like Bubba Ventron who have been special teams coaches who can't get a shot. I mean, I, to me, it just says everything about the Colts that they don't trust any of their own guys in the building. So they're going to go with this outside guy because Jim Mercer on a whim just decided that would be the right thing to do. You're alienating everybody in your building. I talked to a lot of people in the NFL right after it happened who were shocked. And a lot of – I had one guy fly out there. I didn't go anywhere they're doing it. They want to lose every game the rest of the year. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with that opinion, but I think that it's indicative of a franchise that has no rudder. I think he nailed it. Yeah, I, I think so too. I do. Yeah, I mean, you he was right on with your theory. You had some people in the league actually questioning, are they actually trying to tank? Yeah, they're trying to tank, but they're not bad enough to tank. I'm not going to – not – Disclosure, I am not telling you the Colts are a good team by any stretch of the imagination. They're mediocre. But yeah, they're not that bad. They're like a six-win team. Maybe seven if you get a little bit of luck. And that's not bad enough to get the top quarterback in the draft. And they want him really badly. Yeah, well, they've been missing some luck over the last, like, five years. It's really hurt them. It's really crazy. Think about what they would be in the last couple of seasons if they had Andrew Luck. Yeah. And he, does that, Never know. Crazy thing is, he's he definitely has not regret his decision. No, Man, what a shame though. Like he was a great quarterback, he really was, and he retired. What? How old was he? Like twenty nine? Yeah. He only been in the league for seven years. Yeah, and he and he was improving. He had that one 
uh, a couple of injury plagued seasons, but then he seemed like he figured it out again. And then it was just like, nope, I'm out of here. Yeah, well, I think he made the every right. year he was like really healthy. They made the playoffs and they won a game almost every year in the playoffs too. Yep, absolutely. Let's go on. Let's go back to the Sky Guys for a bit because we have to include an Andor uh, shout out here because that show was the highlight of, of our Star Wars coverage over on Sky Guys this year. That show kicked ass. It, it did one of the three biggest shows of the year alongside uh, House of the Dragon and Rings of Power. Now, is that true? Those are the big three right now. Everybody's talking about. It. Nobody's really talking about Stranger Things anymore. So more. That's how I was asking. More than Stranger Things. I think the Stranger Things thing. I think it burned out so fast. It's only like over two contrary things, and now everybody's talking about House of the Dragon, Rings of Power, and or I've seen the being conversation right now. Which of those three is the best? I'm going to take a quick moment here to say that that's why I appreciate the weekly releases, and I think that has a lot to do with it. Yeah, because because it, it, uh, it, it keeps the conversation going longer. Simple as that. Because Stranger Things is like a comet, and then we had it longer this year because they had the break between the first seven episodes of the last two. But ordinarily, like it's a weekend, it's over, and you have like a week of like follow up. I say it all the time. It's very stressful if you're a big yeah. Stranger Things fan, big Netflix person. That show comes out usually on a Friday, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it comes out on a Friday. You're at work, whatever. Let's say you're, you're you're working on office five days a week. You're at work, so you can't watch it. You gotta watch. If you don't watch that weekend by Monday morning, you are behind at the water cooler, and you cannot discuss it. It's extremely stressful. You need to binge it that weekend, or you're done. You're yep. behind. It's all over the internet. It's gone. Two weeks later, no one cares. Yep. If you had to guess where we're going in Andor, you want to take a guess on what we are discussing? One way out. Correct. Let's go talk to the. Let's go listen to Kino Boy. This is episode three fourteen, or episode ten recap of Andor. You need to run, climb, kill. You need to help each other. You see someone who's confused, someone who's lost. You get them moving, and you keep them moving until we put this place behind us. There are five thousand of us. If we can fight. Half as hard as we've been working, we will be home in no time. One way out! One way out! One way out! Okay, so that's the speech right there. And I think, honestly, Joe, when they're saying that the Emmy reel for this show, this has to be the number one. This has to be the episode they send in because this speech is incredible. Yeah, I mean, this guy's a legend. He's been in. You know, countless things. I mean, he just gets you fired up and he just wants you to follow him into battle. Yeah, Nick, this speech was incredible. I mean, like Andy Circus, like they do a good job here. I mean, they don't, you don't have the visual aid, obviously, on the podcast medium, but like you can see sort of like he's hesitant at the beginning and Cassian sort of like encouraging him to like sort of like speak from the heart and then like the emotion really pours out. We got the episode title in there, One Way Out, which I think is fantastic. Like, why I remember this speech by and the absolute like range of emotions, the music in the background. This is like little perfection, in my opinion. I agree. I agree. It was a fantastic, fantastic speech. It got everyone pumped up. It got the the audience pumped up. Everyone was ready to go, and that's it. I mean, not not much more you can say about this speech. Is I think we said on the on the Sky Guys the best speech in the history of Star Wars. Yeah, and, and what makes it more admirable when you think about it at the end of the day, because you don't know at the time when he's making the speech that he knows he's not getting out and he's not surviving. 
because he knows they're on top of water and he knows he can't swim. So he's doing this all for everyone else, for the sake of the people and knowing that he's not going to benefit from it. And that's very admirable. Yeah. And for people, Sky Guys listeners who did not get to that episode here, Pete Cosser happened to miss that week. So our good friend Joe Simone happened to show up for that one episode as the third Sky Guy. So he picked a great one to hop on. Yeah, Pete has some bad luck. Because my understanding, so he missed that episode. He, if I understanding also that when you were doing Mando season two before we had gotten the Sky Guys together, really, those episodes are on the feed, but it wasn't really the, the same. But my understanding, he was he did the Frog Lady. Yeah, he did. He did episode two was the Frog Lady. But Pete's had some bad luck. So he's had some bad luck in the character draft. He's had some bad luck with the Frog Lady. So hopefully he can get back on his feet. He had to sit through a seven episode of Book of Boba Fett. That's right. <laughs> All right. Last but not least, we're in a little bit of a World Cup fever here because the World Cup tournament started to wrap up here. And prior to the tournament, I had a preview of Martino Puccio, who is a big soccer guy. He had some thoughts on Team USA. So we'll we'll close out the clips here with this one. This is Martino's assessment of Team USA from episode 315. Well, this is the youngest one that we've had. Um, experience is there. A lot of these kids have gone and won the Nations League, which is kind of like a second-rate tournament. But at the same time, they also won the Gold Cup, which is the equivalent of our Euro. Um, it happens all the time. So it's not it's not the craziest of victories, but they have won, and they're very young. So that's something that's very important, in my opinion. We have more players now on the U.S. men's national team squad that have played in Champions League matches. So the amount of players that have played or appeared in a Champions League match is higher than any number that the U.S. has ever had, which just for example is we're having guys play at the highest of levels and they're playing on pretty good teams. So that's great to see. There's still a bunch of injury question marks. Certain players like Christian Pulisic haven't been that great. In recent months, he's been struggling, but when they play together as at the national team, that third place seemed a little worrying for some. Greg Berhalter is a controversial figure because a lot of people thought that he got the job based off of nepotism. And when his brother was on the board of Team USA, there's so many factors into this that you don't know what you're going to get. There's quality, there's talent. I think that whatever happens in the 90 minutes, we're going to find out about them because we truly don't know at this level. Like you mentioned, we're talking about eight years ago now. A lot of those players, if any, are gone at this point. And this is a new era for Team USA. I think it's a great precursor for what is going to happen when we host the tournament in 2026. Do I think we're going to be that great? That's it. That's it. We'll do that in another four years and we'll talk about this episode. But um, I, I think guys like Eunice Musa, who is such a top young talent that I that I love, like it's going to be X Factor guys like that. We're talking about teenagers, early 20s that are playing in big clubs in Europe. How do they respond to this pressure? So they did pretty well. I mean, like they they had a nice job getting out of the group stage here. Yeah, I watched that game. Uh, nice job. I, I tell you, I don't know hockey. The one thing I know less than hockey is soccer. I have no idea. Yeah, I gotta say, I, I, I wait for I wait for everybody else's reaction. I know goals are good, goals against us are bad, obviously, but I just wait for if I see a kick that goes really far, I wait for everyone else. I'm in the room and they go, "Oh, nice play!" I go, "Oh yeah, nice play." I have no idea. Yeah, the thing I will, Martino said is correct. I think is a great assessment is that this team is so 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 young. It's a lot of babies on this team, and that this success they had in this tournament, getting through the knockout stage, 
set up real well because in four years we host this tournament and this is a team that really could be prime prime for a deep 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 run when it's on u.s soil uh, home field advantage maybe yeah home field advantage with canada and mexico but we will be on u.s soil for every game yeah yeah absolutely all right, that's our trip down memory lane this year. Over an hour in here. Nick, thanks for coming on and taking the trip with me. It was a lot of fun. I have one complaint. What's that? There were zero clips about winning time. Was that not covered on this podcast? And by the way, if it was covered, why was I not called being a basketball fan and a Laker fan? Because you did not watch it on time. You were behind. I was a little behind, yeah. That was true. But no clip from it. I'm surprised. Well, listen to the beginning of this podcast again. Jeff Perlman talks about winning time because his it's his book that's inspired that inspired the show. Well, I'm excited for the second season. I, I I think it's great. I know some of the actors were a little. I mean, some of the characters, like the the real life people, were a little upset about the way their character was portrayed. But I think it was a fantastic show. Yeah, I cover it myself. I didn't put that's why I didn't cut any clips of it from season one. Season two, we got to come on and talk about it. No, oh, get me on as soon as you can. Love to. Yeah, we'll talk about that and. People want to follow us up on the Sky Guys podcast because our holiday festival will be coming out around the same time as this one. How how can they do that? Oh, yeah. That's, that's at Sky Guys podcast on Instagram. I thought you said this is coming out at the same time as the Sky Guys. Oh, how could they do that? I thought that's what I thought <laughs> you had said. They cut out a little bit. But you mean how do they do that? How do they follow it? Yep. And that's at Sky Guys podcast. That is how you do that. Yeah, we do a, we're we're going to talk about all the shows we did on our holiday special on Sky Guys. Like Talk a little about all three live action shows. We did some Tales of the Jedi here. Gives you some clips from there as well. A couple, and we get a lot of fun moments in that, on that podcast. So definitely check that out. And that's going to be a lot of fun to go over a year in review there. So I'm excited to do that. And uh, you know, I, I don't know when you plan to release this episode. I know we had mentioned already we're recording here December first, but happy holidays. Yep, week before Christmas. So it's a see the Christmas present to the Just and the Suffering audience. So stay tuned, guys. We're going to be coming coming back more on the podcast NFL picks right after this. Show me the money. Let's look at this. I think I'm taking too long. I took a spot for a block. I took a long over frost, but still got a knock. All right, show me the money. NFL picks for week 16, Christmas week here on the podcast. Joining me today to do the picks here. Guy whose team is actually playing on Christmas this year for the second year in a row. Joe Dalizio is here. Joe, how are you? Mike, I'm doing well. Love the uh, Christmas sweater that you got going on over there. Yeah, very festive. Got the lights on in the background. All good to go. Very nice. You're ready for the holiday season. Oh, trust me. I've been ready for like at least like three weeks. Three weeks? Yeah. You done with all the shopping? I had the shopping done like two weeks ago. Oh, you're crazy. Yeah. You're crazy. I love the uh, last second shopping. Yeah. The uh, the adrenaline rush that I get from it is incredible. Yeah. That's, why I always, that's why I always wait for the last minute. Yeah, well, I think everybody but two done on Black Friday because the deals are really good this year for what I was looking for. Yeah, I mean, uh, I should have jumped on that. I didn't, so now I'm going to pay the consequences. But I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, looking forward to it here. And we're recording on Tuesday of Christmas week here, and your team played last night. Packers picked up a win. Stay alive in the playoff. Why don't you take away from the uh, Ram game last night? You know what? It's like a double-edged sword right now with the Green Bay Packers. Like, obviously, as a fan, you want to see them win. You want to see them succeed. But then on the other side of things, it's just like, what is the reality of this team? You know, because the more you win, the worse it ends up being for you um, come that draft pick. Now, granted, can you get a a solid first-round pick in in the 20s? Yeah, in the high teens, absolutely. But, I mean, um, this was looking at one point as, you know, a potential top-five pick. 
um, and potentially drafting someone who could be a uh, impact player immediately. Now, again, they could still get that, but you know, they're still in it. And as long as they're still mathematically alive, uh, they're going to keep competing. And if you look at the scenario, um, it's not out of the question, which is crazy. And, you know, the old saying is once you're in the uh, playoffs, it's a brand new season. Yeah, that's for sure. Year. I mean, this has certainly not gone the way we thought it would with for them this year. I mean, I got, you know, for example, in fact, I, you probably look at that stretch of the middle of the season where they had the Giants in London, the Jets in the com- at home, and then the Commanders. And, oh, probably three straight wins. They're 0-3. And then we're sitting here and after week 15. They're 6-8. and eight, And on the odds, looking, what has gone wrong for them this year? Yeah, you know what? I, I think it's been a, a combination of things. Uh, you've seen some terrible play um, defensively, special team, just execution on all ends, really. I, I don't think you could really pinpoint one specific area. But, um, you know, I would even point fingers at Matt LaFleur, play calling, decision making. Um, it's all played a factor. You, I, you can't say you can't look at one one thing and say, you know, that's the reason why they're struggling. But um, let me tell you, did not expect to be in this situation. Though. You look at that schedule and it's always fun playing that schedule game in the beginning of the, the season. And the way things looked, you would have thought, you know, easy six and one, six and two to start off the year. But yikes, I mean. It just got worse and worse and worse. And yes, they pick up a win against the Rams. Um, definitely wasn't convincing, right? Still had some flaws, but you survive in advance at this point. Yeah, certainly do. And they have a huge game on Christmas Day against the Dolphins here. And obviously, I'm wearing my cheese on Christmas Day because I want the Dolphins to lose that game. Considering my team's still in the playoff hunt as well here. So what do you think the Packers have to do to win that game? Yeah, well, you know, I think it's time that this offense – takes a step in in the direction that it should have been weeks ago uh you just got the rookie Dobbs back he's healthy you've seen what you could get out of Christian Watson you know it's 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 now or never you're still getting that miscommunications with with Rodgers and, and some of the receivers and you saw that on a Monday night against the Rams but uh for this offense it's time to to you know put the foot on the gas and go as, as fast as you can uh, I would love to see some hurry up. I would love to see Rodgers getting the ball out of his hands quickly and letting these young guys use the speed that they have. I mean, you saw it a few times uh, with Christian Watson, obviously. Um, Dobbs has been injured, but you saw the potential. It'd be great to see it all come together in these final few weeks. Yeah, it's also interesting for the spread of this game because I looked yesterday before the Monday night game. They it was essentially open. I think a Dolphins minus six. It's moved a point and a half in the Packer favor after last night. So I think. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think there is a little bit of momentum on the Packers side. Obviously, it's an important game for both teams. Both uh, the Packers trying to keep their season alive. Miami trying to stay within the playoffs. So, um, to no surprise, I feel like when people start to see teams getting hot. At the right time, you know, that's where the popular pick starts to trend. And because Aaron Rodgers and co. are still alive, I mean, I could totally see a lot of people um, gravitating towards them in this game. Yeah, they certainly can here. And before we get into the picks, I think we should revisit where we stand on our overrunners, which is last year, I remember, was like a whitewash here. This one's been much, much closer. Uh, I know. I know. I'm pleasantly surprised. Yeah, so I'll start with you. We have graphics in the video version after it after this goes on YouTube here. So Joe's picks this year. He took the Steelers under seven and a half. That's still in play, Joe. Still in play. Yeah. Still in play. 
You have one. You have a loss of the Giants under seven. That's been a big surprise that they're that they've done so well. You, you can't tell me that you thought they would be where they are. Right no, now. <laughs> nobody could. You really can't. Yeah, but kudos to them. Yeah, Falcons under five is a push. You could stay at a push because I can, I can see all the Falcons lose out. You never know now with the new quarterback situation. Who knows? Yeah, Cowboys over ten. That's a push right now. You should win that one. I would think. I I should be good. I think I actually get through with that uh, this week. Yeah, Cincinnati over ten. That that's a push right now. That should also probably be a win. Probably I think as soon as this week. Yeah, I think uh, I think it's, I could clinch two this week. Yeah, so that would be good here. And then you have a loss. Tampa over eleven and a half. Obviously, that year is not as gotten for what Tom Brady thought it was going to be. Definitely not. And I this is not what Tom Brady expected when he decided to come out of retirement to play again. Yeah, that's that's your picks. My picks right now. I had the first win of the year. The Jets over five and a half. I got that in like week eight. Uh, very impressive. Yep. Patriots under eight and a half is still in play. Could be tough. I mean, they gave you a gift last week against the Raiders. You look at who they play the rest of the way. They play Cincinnati, Miami, and Buffalo. They lose two of those three. I win that one. You never know. Yeah. That's the scary part here. Yeah. The Browns under eight and a half is still in play, which I think I can get that one as well. Definitely in play. Uh, Deshaun Watson's return hasn't been much to, to talk about, really. Yeah, the back the back half has not been as good for me. Colts over 10. We don't need to talk about how bad that one is. Woo! Yeah. 49ers under 10 was a push. Although, he fair that one. I took it when Trey Lance was probably going to be playing the whole year. I think with Jimmy G, Grandin's like, okay, I'm probably losing that one. And look, they haven't missed a beat even without Jimmy G right now. Yep. And then I took your guys over 11. How does he know how that went? Yeah, that's not looking so pretty. No, so I think like... I think my best shot here is three and three. There's a chance this is just an outright push. Yeah, that'd be great. That'd yeah. be that'd be some great competition. Yeah, it certainly would be here. And see a great competition. Let's get to the picks. This is why you're here. Here, our good friend Martino Puccio was here last week. He went one and two on the week. He had the Jaguars getting the four and a half against the Cowboys. They won outright. He had the Eagles laying the nine. They they did not cover. They won the game. You had the Pats laying the one, so obviously he got screwed by uh, the Patrick Patriots who paid at the end of that game. Unbelievable! I still don't know uh, what what went through the, the what 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 went through their mind on that last play. And honestly, you know, I I go back to the Monday night game with the Packers and and Rams um, when Rasul Douglas intercepts the ball and throws it backwards. My like <laughs> my heart stopped. I said, "This isn't happening on back to back days." Like, come on, this yeah. this can't be true. Luckily, I mean- it didn't. I mean, I watched that live on I was laughing my ass off. I saw that happen. I mean, that's like straight out of a video game. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. It was great. I, I had the rare one, one, and one weeks. So I had a win, a loss, and a push in there. So what so lo, let me hear what's the overall record? How are you doing compared to the to the guests? Not doing well, but to reset to reset what I did last week here. I had the Bengals laying the three and a half. I I was a little worried when they down seventeen nothing, but then they came back and one scored thirty four, so I was good there. I had the Jets laying the point. I made the pick before Zach Wilson was in there. If, he, if I'd known he was the crowd, I probably would have touched that game. Okay, smart, smart. And I had the Titans getting the three, and it was a push because they ended up losing by three. Wow. Tough. Yeah. So Tough on, week. Yeah, so on the year, Teen Challengers 22-22-1, so they're at 500. I'm 18-26-1. It's not been a good year for me. Oof, you've been struggling, Mike. But don't worry, I'll I'll help you out this week. Go a little, I'll win three for you. You bounce back, <laughs> you know, and you're right there. Yeah, the problem is I've not had one perfect week yet this year. I think I've gone two and one a couple of times and not gotten the three and zero yet. You got a few more weeks to go. Yeah, absolutely. plus playoffs. 
Yeah, we'll see what happens there. As the guest, you can go first. So where are you going with your first pick of the week here? All right, first pick of the week. I am going with an NFC North team. I'm taking uh, Detroit minus two and a half against Carolina. Uh, here's a team that a Detroit team that is fighting for a playoff spot should already had should already technically be in the playoffs despite you know how poor they played earlier in the season a few things go um differently earlier on in their in the early weeks and, and it, we're talking about a completely different story but they've been playing phenomenal um carolina obviously their season is is you know has been done uh, quarterback situation coaching situation i really like detroit being able to take care of business relatively easily uh, against carolina yeah that one for me is a stay away because i know carolina technically still is alive for the north they've been a lot feistier since they fired matt rule and steve wilkins in the coach like i get your luck i just don't nowhere near that game yeah no totally it makes sense on both sides of it i you know i just think uh detroit's kind of gotten over that hump of being able to close those games and now it's you know now it's now it's game time. You know, they do it They do it this week. It's a good step in the right direction for them in their playoff hopes. All right, where are you going with pick number two? Pick number two. I am going to go Dallas minus five against the Eagles. Uh, divisional game, but the main reason why I'm going uh, Dallas minus five here is because of the injury at the quarterback position for the Philadelphia Eagles. Not sure what's going to happen, um, but if I was the Eagles, I'd tread very carefully as we are very close to the postseason here. So um, I think Dallas has no issues. They're going to want to come out real strong after what happened last week. Yeah, again, I see same thing. Like, I love the logic of the pick. I just going nowhere near the Cowboys. It's what they've done the last few weeks where they struggled with the Colts for three quarters. They struggled with the Texans. They lost the Jaguars. I'm staying off of Dallas for a few weeks. Yeah, totally, totally see that logic as well. If they're going to want to make a playoff push, they're going to have to right their ship at the uh, in these final weeks here. Um, and they should be able to take advantage of of, of a, a quarterback situation in Philadelphia. That's not ideal right now. All right, let's pick number two. Where are you going with your last pick of the week? All right, last pick. I'm going to get a little cute here, a little feisty here. Um, I'm going uh, Chicago plus nine against the Buffalo Bills. Uh, Chicago played a great game, I thought, against, uh, against Philly last week. It's going to be cold as hell. I know both these teams um, are... are very used to playing in the in cold weather games, but um, I think Chicago will keep it close. Buffalo still wins. But I think Chicago keeps it close. Yeah, that's a, that's a solid pick. The big number two at home with the hook, I, I, or the big plus nine, I like that play. Yeah, no, that's the thing. You're home. It's a lot of points. At this point of the season, weather could have a huge impact on these games. Yeah. And I think it's going to be like by kickoff, like in the negatives. So, yeah, you know, again, Buffalo is used to playing in it, but I like Chicago on this one. All right, so your pick's on the board. Pick number one, use the weather as a lot as well. Plus, I don't understand, like, why this team gets as much respect as it does for how bad it plays this year. I'm going to take the Browns laying the three at home against the Saints here. This is the one where the Dome team not played well on the road. They're going north in this weather here. They're not going to play well out there. And, Joe, they've won one road game all season. It was week one in Atlanta here. Cleveland's playing a lot better. They've won three of their last four games. I think the Browns are still faintly alive here. They have to keep their hopes alive one more week. I'll lay the three of the Browns for the first pick of week three, week 16. Can't, can't argue the logic there. Really can't. All right, so let's pick one here. Pick number two. They won for me last year. going to ride again with the Bengals, get, laying the three and a half against the Patriots in Foxborough here. I've been down to England all year. I don't think they're very good. The only teams they've beaten with a winning, with a, even a 500 record this year has been the Jets and Zach Wilson, the quarterback. Cincinnati is the highest team in the league here. They're laying only three and a half points on the road. I think they win by at least a touchdown how well they're playing here. I think the Bengals second pick. 
Yeah, you know what? This is a classic game. I, I think I, I like Cincinnati in this one too. There's one of the ones that I had uh, on my list. Uh, this is a classic game where what we just saw happen last week. You know, Bill Belichick is gonna have is gonna be fired up for this one. Try to get his his team fired up for it. Um, this would have been one of the ones that I stay away. But if I had to choose, I, I'd lean on Cincinnati. All right, pick two. Pick three. I'm going on Christmas here. The number to me is too big on this one. I think the Cardinals getting six and a half at home against the Buccaneers. And I know Tampa's still in the lead. They played like garbage for most of the second half of the season here. They blew a 17-point lead last week. They're going on the road. I know the Cardinals don't Kyler Murray. They're, they're nearly a touchdown favorite. I don't buy it. I think this game is close. I think Tampa wins by a field goal here. I think Arizona is fired up for their last like national appearance of the season. I think they do put a good effort forth here. I think I'll take the points, take the six and a half for the Cardinals on Christmas Day. Yeah, I mean, I, I I like that one a lot. I like that one for a little uh, holiday holiday action. Yeah, so you to see the numbers. I'm like, Tampa should not be laying six and a half to anybody, regardless of where the field is right now. Totally. Yeah. Totally. All right. So to reset the picks for Christmas week here, Joe is taking the Lions, getting two and a half, and Carolina against the Panthers. The Cowboys laying five at home against the uh, Philadelphia Eagles, and the Bears getting nine home against the Buffalo Bills. My picks, the Browns laying three at home against the New Orleans Saints. The Cincinnati Bengals laying three and a half in New England against the Patriots. And the Arizona Cardinals getting six and a half at home on Christmas against Tom Brady and the Buccaneers. Those are your picks for week 16. Just two weeks left to go in the season here. Next week, I'm going to be joined by my friend D.N.D. Martini. Talk about how his Colts have gone wrong, whether they can play spoiler against the Giants in week 17. Mike, I have a feeling I'm going to get you right back into this one, buddy. That's <laughs> That's why you love putting me on the podcast. This week's been this week is a rough one to pick though. These lines are hard. Yeah, there weren't many ones that like really stood out to me that was like, wow, all right. I you know, but we'll see. It's the end of the year. We'll see. Yeah, Ryan the State of Ohio and Colt McCoy. That's my my picks for this week. Now that's something. You don't really hear that often. No, it certainly don't, Joe. Thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. People want to find on social media. How can they do that? Yeah, they give me a follow on Twitter at Joe Double underscore D A L O I S I O. All right, Joe. Thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Appreciate you, Mike. Have a great holiday. Good luck this week. You too. All right, we are back here closing down the holiday special here on the podcast, talking some Marvel. They released a new, brand new holiday special starring the Guardians of the Galaxy, dropped on Disney Plus on Black Friday, November 25th. As always on the podcast, when we have the pop culture uh, alarm going off here, Sandra Rosa is here to answer the call. Sam, welcome. How are you? Good to be back. How are you? Pretty good. I mean, this is our second Marvel special we've done this year. We did the Halloween one, Werewolf by Night. Now we get the Guardians Christmas special, which is, the, I've enjoyed this one. I thought it was fun. Yeah, it was uh, very lighthearted um, and exciting in in certain ways. Yeah, it was very interesting. It was a very typical holiday special energy. I feel like there there was some some fun stuff going on there. I did get some laughs out of me. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, you know, as we'll discuss, it started off on an interesting note for me, and it moved the needle moved more towards positive than negative. All right, let's go ahead. You're going to throw the spoiler warning up here. If you have not seen this special, it's about 40 minutes on Disney Plus, not like not counting, not counting credits. So if you don't want to be spoiled, 
you can always stop the podcast, go watch, come back, turn it back on and listen to us talk about this afterwards. But I think it was a lot of fun. I think I, I think it's also did a good job of getting me back in with these characters, getting, getting excited to watch it in Guardians 3. Yes, exactly, which yeah. comes out in May, I believe. Yeah. Yes, it does here. So let's give a little bit of the background here. Give us the general premise here, like what this uh, special is about. So it's just basically, you know, like elevator pitch. Uh, we talk about the uh, Peter and how he celebrated Christmas, basically. And Yondu basically said, I hate Christmas, whole Grinch situation. And then um, the members of the Guardians of the Galaxy tried to remedy his bad uh, interactions with Christmas with Yon- uh, Yondu. So um, that's basically it. And it, they follow a little kooky little adventure. Yeah, hijinks ensue, all, all the good stuff. Yeah, like very classic. Yeah, it's a classic situation here. So we'll start out here. I think we got, the big thing I want to talk about here is obviously the whole thing is basically Mantis decides to pick on herself to say, I'm going to make Peter's Christmas memorable because we find out interesting twist here. Sort of throws off the top, the top of, the, of the special years that we found out apparently she is Peter Quill's sister. This is a big piece of canonization they dropped here. Apparently, Ego was her father. And she feels bad that, like, she doesn't want Peter Quill to feel bad, like, about, like, what happened with Ego when he sees her. So she's making out the about giving him the best Christmas present possible, which is Kevin Bacon. Yeah. You know, starting off, interesting. Uh, an interesting string of events and information, uh, which I was like, okay, I guess. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I don't know what you thought about it, but I was just like, okay, like, waiting to see what's going to happen next. Yeah, I thought it was interesting here. Do you also hear the controversy with this uh, reveal, the uh, Mantis reveal? No. I don't know if you've seen, if you did these subscribe, you've ever seen those like Marvel Studios Legends things? Like where they put like little, it's basically like little YouTube mashup videos. They put together clips of like characters before they come out in a new project. Yeah. Apparently they leaked the Mantis reveal in the Legends clip before the special came out. Oh, well, that's an oversight. <laughs> yeah, and they went back and had to edit it and, and, and dropped and like pulled the thing down and put a new version up without it. So. This, oh, was, great. this was leaked days before the uh, episode, before the special dropped. Ugh, not what you want. That's a little sloppy for Marvel. Yeah, just a little. I mean, they have a million things coming out right now, so I feel like maybe they're a little uh, overwhelmed. Yeah, maybe the quality control's not been as great lately. Yeah, I don't know if you saw, too, that um, they're going to focus more on quality over quantity in the coming phases. That's so pro- that's, that's what I think I'm most excited for about Marvel right now. That's probably a wise decision. Extremely wise. Yeah. That is wise here. So I do think the one of my fun things here is that like we get the good solid like ten minutes of Mantis interaction running around LA trying to find Kevin Bacon. Like this was highly enjoyable. Yeah, no, it was funny. Um, it was a little slapsticky, but uh, I thought it was cute. You know, it was like weird that they're taking pictures with people and nobody recognizes them because didn't they help save the planet? But whatever, that's just me. Well, I mean, neither one of them was there. To 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 be fair. Because, I guess. because in, in in Infinity War, they're with uh, Peter Quill on like uh, Thanos' homeworld, trying to like stop Thanos. Yeah, but like, wouldn't you think that there's like a thank you with a picture somewhere, being like eh, for all the Avengers? You know, that was just that's just me being nitpicky, I guess. Yeah, it's like I enjoy like what do you enjoy the most from this spot here? Because I feel like we have good choice within like them getting drunk at the gay bar, like the. Uh, the picture sequence where Mantis is collecting money from like photo people collecting photos are and has no idea what to do with it. And the search for Kevin Bacon itself, like, oh, and they had the funny little graphic on the map that running different celebrities houses trying to find where he is. 
Yeah, um, I feel like my favorite part of that one was just after the drinking where she goes, where's all my money? Yeah. Like, where did all my money go? And yeah. I'm just like, that's very relatable. It, it was quite relatable. And I did enjoy, like, we get to see Ke Kevin Bacon's house and we see here, like, I say as a avid Christmas decorator here, like, Kevin Bacon has incredible Christmas decorating style. Yeah, um, I didn't think he liked Christmas that much or like inflatables, which what I think is a little unclassy of Kevin Bacon. I mean, Kevin Bacon, you could afford the sculptures. I don't think you need the inflatables. Yeah, or just simple lights. You yeah. don't need the inflatables, candy canes, but that's just a me, a me thing. I mean, the candy canes are okay. I think the inflatables are a bit like, you know, like too much, especially when you're like a guy with the, the money power of Kevin Bacon. Did you? Yeah. And did you see the the chipmunks? Their mouths would move. Yep. It bugged me out. I did not enjoy those inflatable things. No, I didn't either. I did enjoy like the the whole scene where like they're trying to like basically catch Kevin Bacon and bring him back with them. And Mance eventually like basically brainwashes, use their powers to like put him in a trance. And then before they go, they basically buy out the entire like holiday like white store and they deck out the ship. Like I thought that yeah. was and very funny to see Drax in a Christmas sweat. Always swear the rest of the episode. Yeah, um, that was interesting. Like, the whole chase scene was a little too... Slapsticky. Yeah, it was a little too... I don't know, it was just not what I guess wanted. I understand it's a Christmas special. It's probably supposed to be lighthearted and, like, slapsticky. But I was just like, oh, okay. We're going to, like, argue about the small elf thing and, and a candy man, like, the candy cane, which she thought was a man. I was like, okay, that's a little weird, but... Let's push on. I was okay with it because I like the fact that like we had basically Manus and Drax and the main characters in this because they never really get enough attention in the Guardians movies. No, they don't. And I feel like no offense to Drax, I'm okay with that. He gotta like like Drax in his element in his small lines and role is great. When it's focused on Drax, I'm like, this is a lot. Even with Mantis, like I like Mantis, but after this I was like, oh, she's a little uh she's a little much. She's a little nuts here, and we do sort of see at the end that, like, they they do put together this, and I have this fun moment where, like, they have all the light scene coming on here. You see Nebula is there, and she's, like, reluctantly going along with this, and then is that this, that, like, funny acting by uh, Chris Pratt where, like, he sees the big box of the present, he gets so excited, then he hears somebody, he's like, wait, what? Like, this, this is very, very wrong. Yeah, I mean, it's, like, funny and goofy in that part, um... It's just like really interesting with all the actors because I'm sure they shot this during their filming of Guardians of the Galaxy 3. Yep. So like that's where I'm not going to lie to you the entire 40 minutes was me like, okay, like I guess they decided that they're going to, you know, it was in their contract or whatever. Like I was thinking so many like, like logistical things yeah. of this like special, like when did they film this? Like, you know, like all this stuff, like who designed the sets. Like I was just in a very like, huh? So we got all these, you know, grade a actors from the Marvel things and we're going to have a holiday special and there's going to be singing and dancing. And a talking dog. Maybe I'm just thinking too much into it. Yeah. I think you are overthinking a little bit. Probably. Yeah. Speaking of the music here, we did have, I think, Two very big musical numbers here. At the beginning, we have the band, the old 97s. Like, they play characters in the thing. And apparently, they're writing a Christmas song they want Peter Quill to do. And, like, this thing, I was the bit I enjoyed it at first. I think it went on a little too long. It definitely did go on a little too long. Um, 
it did get funny in some parts, which yeah. I was like, okay, but it was very long and I did not enjoy the Kevin Bacon song. So, well, I mean, Kevin Bacon is there. I mean, you got to do something with him besides like have him be in a trance. No, totally understand that. I just don't understand why Kevin Bacon's singing. I did enjoy the bit when he's in a trance and they were trying to ask him about his exploits, the Peter Quills and telling him about it. And he's like, that wasn't me. That was a guy I played. Like, that, And then they're like, we hate actors. Like it was very yeah. meta. Well, that was that was pretty funny. Like yeah. that part was pretty silly. That was that was very meta here, and I did en- enjoy. Like I think at one point, I think when the scene's going on, the nebula goes on. Like someone, somebody like like I hate this sh- like ass or something like that. It was that also got me laughing. Yeah, or when she's just like, I guess not all actors are shitty. Like yeah, yep. you know, yeah, that was the line. It's a lot of fun. We had that one. You mentioned the cartoon. No, this because like I remember when when these first came on, we start in a cartoon with a flashback to like a story that Flagrel was telling about like how when he and Yon, when we were kids that they tried to Peter was teaching about Christmas, they put a tree up on Yandu's ship. They were doing presents, and Yandu basically like squashes Christmas. And he says like, "Oh, you know, like this is a bad idea. Like you know, like it's just gets you too it, it gets you too soft. You have to be tough out here to survive." And Peter's like, "This is all sentimental." He's like. No, like he throws the tree in the trash. Like that one, I was a little confused. I'm like, wait, we were promised like all these actors. I saw the trailer, and then like, once it gets, I'm like, oh, okay, I get it. Yeah, like, and it was like over the top dramatic with him like kicking the tree. It seemed like like a last minute thing. I'm like, I'm always happy to have Michael Rooker on Guardians. I love Yondu. Like he was like one of my favorite. Um, but I was like really upset. I was like, oh my God, is this all cartoon? I swore I saw people in the trailer. Like I'm like questioning everything, but I guess it's fine for telling a story. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, I talked to you about this off air. I mentioned it on here, air two here. I mean, James Gunn has done several interviews since, and he's talked about the inspiration for this was the Star Wars 1978 holiday, which we covered on Sky Guys podcast last year, which literally is a heaping pile of trash. He basically <laughs> said, if this was done correctly, this is how it would look. And one of the elements in that was a cartoon, which by the best part of the whole thing, it's actually the only piece of it's actually been seen since the original airing in 78. It's like, it's a cartoon that really introduces Boba Fett into the Star Wars universe. So, okay. So like this, I guess is, is homage to that. And we find out the cartoon story, like basically it's a happy ending because Yondu sees his present. And then like, he ends up gifting Peter his toy, his guns. He ends up carrying for the rest of his life. Yeah. That was like a pretty significant, you know, callback. But uh, yeah, it was just like, okay cartoon you know like starting off cartoon got me yeah i was like is this gonna be another what if episode yeah yeah i thought i maybe hit the wrong thing for a second yeah exactly that's what i thought yeah that's for sure and we also skip this fun montage of like the guardians giving gifts to each other and like i thought it was fun seeing group like give everybody sculptures of themselves that was fun i love that nebula gave rocket uh bucky's arm like he wanted infinity war (laughs) Yeah, no, that was probably my favorite part of the entire holiday special. Especially that it was Nebula who went and got it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I I love Nebula. I think she's a really great character. But, like, I feel like, you know, I understand I didn't write it. I can never be James Gunn. Uh, but I was happy that he included. Now, I don't ever use his character name. And I don't use the actor's name either, which is also his brother. But uh, Kirk. Yeah. Have you ever watched Gilmore Girls? Yep. But I call him Kirk. Yeah, so flag girl, Sean Gunn. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Who, like, is also the raccoon. Like, I'm not raccoon. Um, He's always playing, like, really crappy parts for his brother. And I think that's, like, the best 
sibling relationship in Hollywood. Like in um the Justice League, the second movie, not Justice League, Suicide Squad. Uh, Suicide Squad. Squad. Yeah, he's the like little ah, like looking weasel thing. Yeah, like yeah. I love that. Like his brother's like, oh yeah, you're gonna go play him. Yeah, he's, and he's like, okay. Yes, like, yes, he has the mocap for rock, motion capture for Rocket. Yes, and, yes. And then he's, so, actually, he's actually human. He actually he's also fat girl too. So like he gets like two spots in that movie. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I just like I just love that he's like okay like yeah. to whatever his brother says basically yeah and then we of course we kirk and he was kirk in gilmore girls who is yeah. arguably arguably i can't say that word right now one of the best characters in the show yeah i i've not watched gilmore girls i'll take your word for it you haven't seen okay well i guess that tracks but also <laughs> great great show yeah it's a little long-winded but it's good Okay, well, I'll put that in the notes for maybe future viewing down the line. But right now, that on the far down list, if yeah, you want. Yeah, it's got to be behind, way behind, like Game of Thrones and House of Dragons. I got to start soon. Understood. Yeah. Anyway, we'll talk uh, to get this big moment here at the end where Mantis finally tells Peter Quill about like their lineage, and Peter like reacts like a typical college festival moment, like, "Oh, this is great. This is the best price I've ever could have gotten here." And like, all is well that ends well for the Guardians. Yeah, I wonder how they're going to be using this in the third movie because yeah. they have to use this piece of information. Yeah, they do. I mean, in terms of giving out information like this, this is not as egregious as like Mandalorian and Grogu reuniting in Book of Boba Fett when you turn on Mando 3. You're like, wait, what? If you hadn't watched Boba, but yeah, this is still important information to have. Yeah, it definitely is. It's very important. Like, you know, it's like it's his sister. Yeah. And basically, I'll summarize the audience here basically like, this is set before Guardians 3. No Gamora in the movies. No Because obviously they haven't found her yet. That's like the focus of Guardians 3 partially anyway. But we do get this. We get the fun little post-credits thing. Or it's, we forgot to mention here. Groot is swole now for some reason. He's growing into his body. His yep. tree. Like he has his baby face. He's a teenager now. Yeah, he gets a game. He gets a vintage Game Boy from Peter too. Is his gift. That, was, that's, that I loved. Yeah, that was really cute. Yeah. In terms of, like, I think this worked pretty well as a Christmas special because, yes, you get the over-the-top music sequences. You get the uh, big A-list actor cameo. You get the goofiness. I thought it works. It was a solid Christmas special. Yeah, it was all right. It was pretty good. Would I watch it again? Most likely, no. Yeah. It would depend. If I was in the, if it was in the Guardians, I might go back to it. But, like, if it's, like, right around this time of the year, I'm not going to say, oh, I have to watch the Guardians holiday special every year. Exactly. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, so... Oh, turns it give me a gray on this. How you how would you do it? Um, being kind to C. Yeah. I think it was C plus. I mean, it 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 did its job. It's 40 minutes. Like I, I had some laughs. Like every time I was confused, and that was fine. I literally, I promise you, if we didn't have to do this, like, you know, this segment, I wouldn't have made it past the first five minutes. It, I would have been nope, can't do it. I would have turned it off. And that was like, and I'm, you know, being kind about that. I will say though, if you had watched the 1978 holiday special, my, my bar is very, very low on these things. So I was pleasantly surprised. Well, yeah, I guess if you've seen something so terrible before that, you know, the bar is set so low. I mean, it's so terrible. It's never been aired in its entirety since the original airing. It's a problem. But, yeah. you know, it's maybe they're like going to be known for the best, worst, you know, holiday special ever. Maybe that's what they were going for all along. Yeah. Two things before we wrap up here. Number one, funniest moment of the special for you. Funniest moment. Um, 
I thoroughly enjoyed, I know I'm not saying his character name right, disclaimer, but uh, Kirk receiving yeah. the Groot's present of himself holding himself. So it was like a very big, like, Inception yeah. gift, which I thought was pretty funny. Or just Groot in general. I think that teenage Groot is hilarious when he's like, oh, now you have a problem with kidnapping? You just rolled him in here. Yeah. Like, that part was pretty funny to me yeah and Groot and Groot was like literally having a moment at the beginning when they're doing the first song like he's in the background like singing along and like and like Peter gives him a dirty look he just stops it was funny too yeah I thought uh teenager Groot was pretty funny I enjoyed I think my favorite thing was the whole like Mantis Drax especially when they're fighting over the uh inflatable like uh elf like yeah I enjoyed that he's where they were having this whole argument like in the middle of trying to chase down Kevin Bacon he's like she's like he's like I gotta forget my things like we're gonna let Kevin Bacon get away he's like but you have your things. Like, I was smart enough to keep it. You weren't. <laughs> that or um, when it's, like, the cloaking device. Yeah. I literally just watched you press that button. Like, that was, like, pretty cute. Yeah. Like I said, they have, like, very, like, fun, like, brother-sister energy going on, too. Like, Definitely. It's a lot of fun here. I think this one, I think, in my opinion, I don't know if you agree on this. I feel like knowing we have Guardians 3 coming up, it's probably the last time we see most, most of it, not all these characters in the Marvel Universe for a while. I think this did a good job sort of teaming up for them. Yeah, um, I feel like I forgot their rapport, I guess. Yeah. But um, I'm just hoping that this movie fixes my anger towards Marvel because yeah. I'm in the anti-Marvel boat right now. Well, I think Marvel, we in general, we talk about that. I think they have a problem where like they did the whole big thing with Endgame and all the Infinity Saga. They wrapped it and then they sort of like, what do we do now? And they sort of threw a bunch of stuff at the wall. There was, nothing's really stuck very well, aside from Spider-Man. No, yeah, Spider-Man was great. I really liked... Um, oh, my God, I can't think of it right now. Uh, the Marvel, Miss Marvel or whatever yeah. it's called. Yeah. Like, the first... like I mean, WandaVision was good. WandaVision was great. They murdered that entire storyline with Doctor Strange and the multiverse. Yeah. And, you know, it's just a lot of, like, where are you going yeah. Like, I'm fine with new superheroes and all this stuff, but, like, I didn't even watch She-Hulk because I can't even, like, and I heard that was pretty good, but I just, like, I'm like, I can't literally keep watching a million different things. How are they connected? Like, there's no, like, to me, no plot. Now, I'm sure there's some sort of, you know, linear story to be told, but, you know, Guardians 3 is the last of, you know, the original, quote-unquote, you know, Marvel's phases yeah. so it's just like how is this going to end you know i'm very interested to see what they're choosing to do yeah that one has my attention because i mean we've already gotten i think i, I mean i'll tell you be honestly like marvel was lost to the point where i'm not like every week if something comes out like i'm not like that day i'll let it build up for before i like catch up because like for me it's like even recording i think on december 5th here like I have not gotten the Black Panther yet. And I know that everybody's loved Black Panther. I just had no time. I'm not motivated to like, I know it's good. I'm going to get to it eventually, but like, it's just too busy to make the time to go see it. Whereas like for something like Andor, which I love, like every, I mean, even if I wasn't doing Scott, I would have made time every Wednesday to make sure I was up to watch the episode. Yeah, no, definitely. Like Andor kept my attention. Yeah. Marvel hasn't like I Black Panther two has had my attention, but it's like, you know, again, hard to like go out to go see a movie sometimes with work and everything. Um, But like these, the any TV show that is on Disney Plus that is Marvel, I do not have the instant urge to watch it anymore. Yeah, She Hulk was fun. I will say that I did watch it like slowly along, like probably like weeks behind, but like it was like it was very funny for what it was worth. 
Yeah, that's I've seen some clips here and there, and it's piqued my attention. So it's going to bring up the rear of 2022. Yeah, that's for sure here. And Sam, thanks for all the time because uh, coming on the holiday special. I really appreciate it. If you want to find on social media, how can I do that? Oh, you can find me at SDeRosa175, SDeRosa6 on Twitter, whatever you're feeling like. Just Google me. All right, Sam. Thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, and that will do it for the fifth annual holiday special here on the Justin and Suffering Podcast. I want to thank my guests this week. I want to thank Jeff Perlman for coming on here. Once again, full interview about the Bo Jackson book, plus his involvement winning time, all that fun stuff with Jeff. Coming, I want to thank him for being on here. Uh, Nick Freida doing the year in review. We go over some of the best moments of the podcast of the year. Joe Dalizio doing the NFL picks. And, of course, our pop culture correspondent, Sandra, I just heard breaking down the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special. That was definitely a fun experience as well. You want to work stuff like this podcast, including my look at an instant reaction, the Yankees signing Carlos Rodon last week, in the six-year deal worth $160-plus million. Check out the blog over at justendthesuffering.wordpress.com. Also check out the Sky Guys podcast. Our own holiday special over there is coming out this week. So if you like the Sky Guys stuff, that is not going to be in the main feed. So check out the Sky Guys podcast on that platform. All the podcasts catch at the top of the show. That Sky, you get the Sky Guys there as well. So follow me on Twitter, mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. Next, we got a doubleheader podcast for you here. We're going to have some college football talk with Bill Banner, the Sporting News, and our college football playoff next Saturday here. NFL picks for week 17. Plus, we'll also do the Pop Culture Party podcast to end the year. Our usual crew, John Stanko, Sandra Rose are going to be on the horn. We're going to have that one out for you as the last podcast of the year. But until then, happy holidays, everybody. As we dream by the fire, the face on a prayer, the plans that we made, walking in a winter wonderland. Walking in a winter wonderland Walking in a winter wonderland